podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Welcome to episode 293 and happy flying new year. This is our annual best of edition. We publish this every year. And this year, we have four episodes running back-to-back in this annual marathon episode. You know, before we begin, I want to say a thank you to all our listeners who supported us throughout the year through our Patreon and our Pay It Forward program. You know, if you're interested in helping someone achieve their aviation goal, please consider our Pay It Forward program from our sister podcast, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash payitforward. And you can just go at the top of the screen here at stuckmikeavcast.com and click on Pay It Forward. You have somebody that's interested in a scholarship, maybe wants to get an extra rating, tell them to go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash free, and we use those Pay It Forward coupons so those people can get a free scholarships guide. Maybe it'll help them get their next rating and fulfill their aviation dream. Now entering cruise flight. You know, as we begin the new year, I hope that one of these episodes will inspire you to pursue your passion for aviation in this new year. We have four episodes. One was a, a part one and part two, and, and we really fell in love with these episodes, and also you folks told us the same and that you really enjoyed listening to these. So let's start it off with episode 264 and 265, back-to-back, and these are part one and two of You Can Have a Successful Flight Instructing Business, both part one and part two. So, Russ, this, this was really awesome that you thought of this topic. Tell us a little bit as to you know, why we're having this discussion today and, and what you, why you felt this was important, especially at this time. Well, you know, Carl, I've, I've been out at the airport a whole lot more the last several months than, than I ever was in the past. I actually kind of started a new business with uh, doing uh, focusing on multi-engine training. And as a result, I'm just out at the airport a ton and you know, hanging out at the FBO and such between students or whatever. Just chatting with, with the uh, the CFIs there at the flight school and some of the you know students that are working on different ratings and that kind of stuff, and yeah, I just thought it would be a really good opportunity to kind of cover some of the things I've discussed with them and and you know, some of the things that that the the four of us have have learned throughout you know our time as flight instructors and just helping folks that are looking to become flight instructors or maybe already are flight instructors but want to expand their business or you know get new opportunities and that kind of thing and just just share some of the the things we've learned and and hopefully help some people out yeah, and I think also another thing that we should discuss before we get started is why become a CFI, and that's a uh, something that we all internally look at is should I become a CFI part-time, full-time, et cetera. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, but I think it's really important to impart knowledge, and if you're somebody that really is 
is just yearning to teach people, I think you should consider becoming a CFI, whether it's full-time or part-time. Uh, and Russ, uh, remind me again, Is now was the CFI, was that something you did so that you could uh, work part-time as a CFI, or were you planning on doing it full-time? Uh, it wasn't really either, actually. I mean, for me, I've always been a little bit of, uh, I don't know, what would you call it, a, a ratings collector or something like that. You know, I just like learning new things, and eventually I kind of ran out of reasonable ones to do. <laughs> so, so you know, flight instructor was the, the obvious next step. And once I got done with that training, I mean, about a week later, the, the school that I uh, had trained at said, hey, you want to come and help us out some, you know, on a part-time basis? I'm like, ah, sure. It's got to be real part-time because I do have a full-time job, you know. And they said that's fine. We understand, but you know, I really didn't expect I'd do more than just a little bit here and there kind of thing. But it's really, I mean, it's just blossomed just amazingly in in the last. It's been eight years now, and I've been in aircraft I never thought I would ever have seen the inside of, you know. So it's just been amazing, and it's it's turned into. It still is a part-time job, but. Man, it's it's actually been you know pretty lucrative. We hear a lot of times about how you know flight instructors can't possibly make any money. Well, that's sometimes true if you're at the flight school making fifteen dollars an hour or something. But you know if you if you gradually work your way up and you know kind of expand your reputation and your clientele and that kind of thing, you can you can do all right. And I'm certainly happy with where it's taken me. You know, Russ, how about I know it's lucrative and all for for some people, many people. How about the enjoyability factor before we get into the actual discussion? Uh, do you like being a CFI? I do. It's it's fantastic. I mean, I, I get to fly. I get to teach people new things. Like I said before, I'm really focusing on multi-engine trading, and that's been just fantastic. You know, sh- you know, you get to show someone who's already existing pilot, you know, what this second engine can do, and what the good things are and the bad things, and and just watching them. You know, just just grow as pilots and expand their their knowledge base. It's just it's amazing. And it's wonderful, and I'm really having a great time. Well, that's good to hear. I, and you know, we all have our reasons for going towards it. And I do appreciate you bringing this up, this whole topic. Well, let's get started with the topic. So, uh, I guess the the first thing to figure out is number one, how to get started as a new CFI. And uh, and well, actually, Russ, I'll have you start this this one. So, you know, how how do you get started as a new CFI? Well, there, there's no secret. You got to. We're not really going to talk too much about you know the training that goes into becoming a CFI. That's been done you know to death other places certainly. But you know the the real issue is okay. You're a flight instructor now. You just you know graduated from flight instructor school or whatever, right? You passed your check ride. Well, well, what now? You know what do you do? So you're a CFI. If the school you're at will hire you back on, great. Uh, that that is a you know a wonderful idea, because here you are with you know zero hours of dual given. You really you, I mean you don't have any kind of a reputation out there. You don't have a, a clientele. You don't have people. You're an unknown quantity, right? And so a lot of people will start out teaching at the local flight school, and I think that's a that is really generally probably the best way to go because you see all this kind of different. Uh, type of people coming in, you know, people with different motivation levels, and and um, you get to kind of build your uh, flight instructing skills, I guess you'd say, uh, in an environment where, well, you you do have some support, 
you know, you've got other flight instructors at the school. You can kind of see what they're doing, ask questions and that kind of thing. Uh, you probably have, you know, resources there. You, the uh, uh, syllabus that's already made for you, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, phase checks or, you know, other instructors that do checks on your, on your students. And so you've got that kind of backing of, of that the new flight instructor really needs because we don't have any idea you know, when we first start out, what exactly to do? We just know, well, we had these good instructors and these bad instructors, and we kind of try to combine them. But, uh, or not combine them, I guess that'd be a better word. <laughs> use, use what we, uh, we learn from each of our previous instructors. But as far as being a new instructor, man, it can be scary sometimes. And, you know, a lot of anxiety in there, too. So I think it's really good and probably the easiest way to get started out as a new CFI is just to find a flight school that needs you, if that's a place you trained at, great. Um, not only is this probably the easiest way to get started, it's also the most obvious way, of course. Uh, Tom, did you have something in here? Yeah, I was just listening. Um, I, I, I was uh, appreciative of the, your path to becoming a CFI, and you know, mine was similar. I already had a career. I was flying as a, uh, um, a hobby, and uh, came across a great CFI who eventually did my spin training. But um, you know, he wasn't older gentleman and, and you know I started asking him about you know this flight instructor thing and he was just you know bubbling about it and said oh it was, it's a great retirement part-time job and I thought huh, sounds like a cool gig to have a great retirement part-time job I was too young to retire but I thought okay and I started doing the same thing was just collecting ratings until I got to the point of, of um, flying and I agree with you. Um, for, for me, the experience was the same thing. Um, the day I took my CFI check ride, when I walked back into the flight school, the flight school director was standing at the counter of the, of the flight school and looked me in the eye and said, so, did you pass? And I went, well, yeah. And he goes, here, fill this out. And had the application, you know, my, my employment application waiting for me <laughs> when I walked in the door. And, and that's how quickly that I, was, I became an employed CFI. You know, um, I don't know that that happens to a lot of people or, or if that's the way that it goes. But, um, you know, you're right. That is that is the least path of resistance. I have seen other people, though, that, you know, specifically I have since, you know, I've been a CFI long enough that I can make other CFIs. And since I've got three or four of them under my belt, I've, I've known guys that were specifically going to get a job at a certain place and had already predetermined that as they were working on towards their CFI. So it's never too early to start doing that, you know, to start having a plan in place if you, I mean, it's a lot of work to get the CFI. So you've got a lot of time to have a thought like that of, you know, what am I going to do with this once I get it? You know, so I, I think that's an important point. So that, you know, what's really interesting. It sound from both of you, it sounds like this was kind of a, almost a serendipitous journey. It's, it's not, it wasn't totally specific. I'm going to be a CFI. It sounded like it was more of a challenge for both of you. And also what happened from there it opened this door to this new job. So, I mean, that's one of the, like you said, a great way to get started is get your CFI out of school and then turn back around and talk to the people uh, that actually uh, you're renting from or, or getting your, your CFI from. Uh, Bill, you know, I'm curious. I guess you, you should weigh in here as far as, you know, how you got started. Did you do the same thing? Did you go out there and just decide to become a CFI and turn around? Well, here's a job for you. Well, yes, yep. I've been around long enough. I did it a couple times. So the first time was just like uh, those guys described as well, right? Um, got the CFI at a 141 school and turned right around and taught for them. 
Um, but then, you know, as you know, we talked about that before. I went rusty for a long time and came back to it again. Um, and came back and uh, uh, reinstated my CFI at a 141 school. And I still work with them a lot, but, um, you know, I don't work for them and didn't go back to the school. But, you know, that's another good resource. Even if you're not uh, back uh, working for the school that trained you or the big school, um, you know, a, a uh, advice for folks who are maybe striking out on their own is, you know, try to find somebody uh, that you knew from there or, you know, maybe a highly experienced instructor there, their chief instructor as a mentor, you know, that, that peer review and uh, someone that can help you with, even if it's not just the instructing stuff, how do I go about doing this? You know, if you're doing it on your own, it could be pretty scary to, you know, sign off that first person. Yeah, speaking of scary, you know, I, I tell you, I was a little bit worried when I started instructing uh, that I was covering everything properly. One of the ways I actually got over that is just studying really hard and before every lesson. Uh, so that kind of helped me get over some of those initial fears of instructing. My fear was, am I imparting knowledge correctly and am I doing this properly? And I found to get over my fear, and this is just my experience, is that I would just study like crazy uh, before each lesson until I was able to do basically any lesson that was in the syllabus, almost from memory. Now, obviously, I wouldn't do that, but that's how I kind of got over that one fear. But I'm sure that, I mean, there's other fears that we all have in instructing, uh, and I'm kind of curious what other people might think. Like, Russ, is there anything that you had some fears about when you started instructing? Oh, sure. <laughs> I think the most nervous I've ever been, more than any check ride, was the day I was driving to the airport for that first student of mine. Here I'm a brand new instructor, zero time, dual given. Uh, brand, it was a brand new student. You know, it was going to be his first flight. And man, I, I don't think I got any sleep the night before. <laughs> you know, it was worse than a check ride uh, because I, in my mind, it's just. I, I need to teach him right the first time, you know, you, you know, primacy and I've just put all this pressure on myself. Right. And at the time I had, I had about a thousand hours of flight time. So I wasn't, you know, a, a real new pilot at the time. And, and I was, man, it was tough, <laughs> but, but, uh, and, but after that first, just, just that first, you know, icebreaker or whatever, you know, ripping a bandaid off kind of thing. You know, then you realize, hey, maybe I can do this. You know, that this is not this is not so bad. Um, you know, I, I do uh, be okay. <laughs> you, but you just need to get that first one, and that first one was nerve wracking. I, I imagine it might have been a little bit different. You know, it's, it's probably a good idea to kind of break yourself in easier to this. You know, maybe by doing flight reviews or something like that. But man, I was just thrown right in the fire, and and fortunately, it, it let me kind of get over that anxiety pretty. Yeah, Tom, what do you got? Yeah, so uh, I agree that that very first one was, you know, when, when after I filled out that application and came back the next day, they said, okay, we got this guy who's showing up tomorrow morning. He's coming in from the Northwest. He's buying a plane here in Florida and he wants to finish out his private. And he's going to fly his plane home. And I'm like, okay. And I did. I got to spend three days with this guy. Um, basically prepping him because he had all his hours and everything. I basically prepped him for a check ride and lo and behold, he passed. And I can't tell you how nervous I told him. I says, I want regular reports on your flight home. I was scared to death, you know, that, that something was going to happen to him and it would reflect on me. And I don't know. I was, I, I was just very fearful over that, but it made me concentrate really 
hard on the students that I was getting. Um, there was another flight instructor who was leaving to go to the airlines, and he basically gave me four students as soon as um, he left, and that was like the day after I got my my CFI. So I admit I had four students immediately. So there was a lot to do, and I, I was getting into it. And the problem was, is I got a little comfortable to start with. And um, one of these students, uh, we went out one day to go do some practicing, and I was trying to, you know, stay off the controls as much as I can to let them learn. Um, and this guy, for whatever reason, we got to the top of a, a power on stall. And just as the pl airplane stalled, he kicked the left rudder and put us into a spin and scared the living bejesus out of me. And, you know, it was, we recovered, everything was fine. We went back to the airport, did some pattern work and stuff. But man, I tell you what, you want to talk about a healthy respect for um, keeping an eye on a student when you're sitting in that other seat and, and doing the right thing as a CFI, that definitely put it into me. And, and that was fear that, um, you know, I think is healthy fear at this point and that sticks with me. I, I, I always remember that. Yeah, it, it really can. I've, I've been at, in similar situations myself, as you just described, you know, a couple of times. Once it was two different people in two different airplanes on the same day trying to put me into a spin. But yeah, it, so so there can be some of that, that anxiety and fear, definitely. Uh, but just getting over it is... If this is something you want to do, it's it's like anything. I imagine for you know the first time out on, on you know on the football field or something. If you're if you're you know trying to you know be a football player or anything like that, first time up on, up on a stage or a concert, you know it's going to be a little bit scary. But you just got to do it, and eventually you kind of get used to it. Uh, absolutely, and you know a little bit now. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I, I was going to say I'll add this in there too. Is that even though that I had those scary moments, like you just said, it's anything else that you do in life that's new. Um, I still wouldn't trade it for the world, and and still really really enjoy being uh, a CFI and and teaching people how to fly an airplane and just the rewards that come with it are are just they they way outweigh that that incident. Absolutely, one hundred percent. After you kind of get over that fear and you get yourself some experience, you know, and you've been maybe teaching to flight school, really what we, we've got to move on, if we want to kind of expand our, our our client base, expand our knowledge, our skills, you know, maybe, I mean, primary training is great, you know, initial flight training, you know, training for the private pilot certificate is great, but there's so much more than that. But in order to kind of get towards that, we really have to focus on establishing ourselves in the uh, you know, as a known quantity in the, in the local area, especially, you know, building up our, our skills, building a reputation. Um, and I don't know about, about you guys, but one of the ways that I've kind of done this is I was teaching the, the flight school and just by doing that, my name kind of, kind of got out there, you know, so I was because of my schedule and such, I was primarily working with, you know, people who were, you know, they, they they weren't in their twenties anymore. You know, they were a little older, and they were interested in getting a pilot. And then go buy an airplane, right? So, well, if, who else are you going to call when you need some training in your new airplane? But the the guy who trained you to fly, right? That makes sense. So, so through the flight school, I was kind of able to build my own client list, my own contacts, and then word Bradley gets out like that. Uh, one of the most important things I did as far as building my skills, trying to really personalize the training I was providing. And, and this, I was helped by just, you know, the fact that oh, I had one guy, he trained in, in a Cherokee and then he went out and bought a, uh, uh, Grumman tiger, right? Well, I didn't 
haven't, you know, there's no syllabus for, you know, canned syllabus you can download for transition from Cherokee into Grumman Tiger, you know? <laughs> so, so you kind of have to make up your own. And by doing that kind of thing just over and over again, you know, I have, you know, dozens of, of different, you know, training syllabuses and that kind of thing for different scenarios that I've encountered. And I think that was really important in my development professionally as just building the ability to put together a, uh, you know, some kind of a training scenario, you know, a training, you know, even if it's just a couple lesson syllabus, you know, for someone calls you, Hey, I need, you know, instrument refresher training in my, you know, airplane like this type, and this is the equipment in it. And, you know, that kind of thing. And there's not at that point, there's nothing that's really standardized anymore. So you have to kind of be able to, uh, develop your own training materials and methods. And the only way to do that is to do it and practice doing it and, and have, you know, uh, a reason to do it with, uh, with the clients that you have. Uh, Carl, Carl, you had a comment. Yeah. You know, on, uh, you know, building your reputation, I'd like to add is that there's one really great way that you can build your reputation and actually do something for the flying community at the same time. And that's getting involved either as a lecturer or a volunteer with the FAA safety program and uh, the FAST team, uh, fasafety.gov. First get involved as someone that's in you know, um, observer of these different safety programs they have, but also start actually doing presentations. And uh, you never know where that'll take you. And that's actually how Tom and I uh, met is through the safety programs for about a year. Uh, I was running all the safety meetings out of the Tampa FISDO, and I was uh, in the Tampa Bay area, I should say. And I was having a blast, and I was getting so many students from it. So I would I would recommend a lot of folks maybe just kind of start doing that, is getting out there and trying to build their reputation and their skills by doing just one thing like that, going out in the safety program. Tom, I, I know that's one of the ways that, that we met. I mean, uh, can you add to that? And uh, I'm pretty sure, right, that was how we met, correct? It is how we met. And, you know, it, it was – it was part of what I was doing um, at the time when we met. I was a lowly private pilot working on my instrument, and I was so hungry for knowledge. And I kept searching and searching, and that's when I came across the the, the FAA safety team and, and some of the seminars that were going on. And sure enough, Carl, I don't even remember. It was, I think it was a weather seminar was the first one that I ever saw you do. And when it was over, I mean, I just... I, I sought you out and just came up to thank you for the thing and, and put my hand out. And we just started talking. And I mean, your personality of liking to ask questions and stuff like that just got us to talking. Um, I'm not really the slouch at talking either, I guess. So, um, you know, we, we kind of we kind of huh? talked for a while and it just it, it went on from there. And I think I went to like another seminar and another one. And before you know it, you know, it was like, hey, anything I can do to help? And that was the question, you know, I mean, because I know that that's a way to get involved in different places. I mean, you ever want to get involved in an area where there's people at and think, and, and I'll use the term, you know, the good old boy system or something like that. If, if you think there's a club or a clique or anything like that, the way to get into it is ask if you can help. And I guarantee you, somebody will say, yeah, I got something you can do. And bingo, you're in, you know, it's, it's, it's worked over and over again. I share that with as many people as I possibly can seek out where you want to be, offer your help. And and things will happen. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, so, um, and, and, and along that line, you know, I mean, uh, Russ was talking about reputations. He's correct. You know, it, it, that's what's happened. After I started teaching, you know, I started um, getting a reputation as a, an instructor that could help people because I was, I, I was seeking out as much knowledge as I was willing to impart. And, you know, I started getting a lot of students that were, um, well, having difficulties with their ratings, you know, so um, a couple of them, I would even venture to say that they were the problem children, you know, the ones that just nobody else, no other instructor could really get through to them. And, and those were the people that would seek me out and, and I would spend a lot of time with because I had the ability to explain things on a level to where they could get it done, you know, and um, it worked. And, you know, when you help one person like that, three more will come in this place. And when they, those three get helped, seven more will come in their place. And it just, it got overwhelming to a point where I had to start turning people away, you know, and, um, but it, it does, it, it works that way is that if you love what you're doing and, and you're going in and doing it, you'll, you'll, you build it, they'll come, I guess is what it comes down to. It really does, Tom, and, and you you pretty much took almost what I wanted to say. Uh, I guess I'd add to that, the, the most important customer or client or whatever, student, whatever term you want, the most important one is the one you have right that moment, you know, the, the one right there. If you focus on them, and then, then you'll probably end up with a good reputation, right? <laughs> because, you know, that person's going to realize, hey, this person, this I'm important to this instructor. They're, they're tending to my needs. You know, they're, they're on time, you know, they're, the instructor's preparing for the lesson, you know, they're, they're not ignoring me. And just what you said, Tom, was that that one person has a good experience with you. Well, they tell their friends, you know, and, and, and it just, it blooms from there and it's fantastic to see it happen. And, you know, it, it kind of sounds trite and a little bit, uh, a little bit silly, but, but it's absolutely true. You know, the, you know, focus on and take care of the person that you're dealing with right now and the rest will take care of itself. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah. So, Russ, you know, we're talking about building your skills and reputation, and um, one of the things that we'd we'd be remiss not to say is this is all part of that networking. And uh, Tom, by saying, hey, just reach out and say hi and and talk to people, uh, that is a very important part of this in establishing yourself, uh, both for your skills and your reputation. Uh, It gives that reputation that you're approachable, but it also enables you to build that network, which is so important. But once you've built that reputation, you've built those skills, one of the things that I found was difficult, because I just got back into it uh, not long ago, is instructing and setting my pay rates and uh, and there's many different types of rates and and so russ i know you've got a a lot of experience in this right now um how is it that you went about like setting your rates well you're right carl that is really tricky because on the one hand especially as a new instructor you really don't know what you're worth right what is someone willing to pay for me and why should they pay that for me yeah I'm, i'm new uh, what I did was, I thought it was pretty straightforward. You know, I had been teaching at the flight school and I knew what they charged the, uh, you know, the, you know, their, uh, students, you know, I know what I got paid, which is obviously less, but I know what they charged. Well, that kind of gave me the idea that, well, the market can bear that number. You know, if it's, you know, if the flight school is charging people $40 an hour or whatever, or 50 or 60, whatever the number is. Well, clearly the market can bear that. And so when I kind of went off on my own from the flight school, I, I started at that number. 
Okay. And I figured, well, that's probably reasonable. I really had nothing else. You know, I, I asked some other people what they're charging, but they were also much more experienced instructors than I was at the time. So I, I, I wasn't sure if I could, you know, get away with that or not, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and then of course, as, as I become more experienced, I have increased my, my rate a couple of times and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where it is now. And it appears that, that other people are pretty happy because I keep getting business, right? <laughs> that, that's the real sign, isn't it? But, but it is a, it definitely a tricky, uh, um, thing to do. And I know you have a, a couple other items we want to talk about as far as how do we charge, but yeah, any other comments about setting your pay, Tom or Bill or you, Carl? Well, I'll go. Um, I, I agree with you, what you, what you said, you know, I mean, I, I started out, I knew what the flight school was, was, um, charging for instructional rate. I knew what I was making out of that, which was about 45% of what the school got, you know, so, and, and I just didn't know any better. So it was over time that I started negotiating a higher price, even with the, with the flight school saying, okay, you know, um, I know what you're getting. I know what you're paying me. It's not fair. Let's, let's see if we can't sharpen that pencil a little bit. And they did because, you know, they realized that I was providing a, a, a good service and, and that I was worth it to them. So we negotiated that out and I became happy with it for a while. But then um, when I left the flight school and went out as an independent, um, it became that that question came back up again. It's like, so I get, I, I get phone calls all the time. Hey, I need to do a flight review. Hey, I'd like, I got an IPC I need to get done. Hey, I've been working on this rating. I need some help. You know, can you help me out? And so those things, um, you know, at, all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, what are you going to charge me? And it's like, all of a sudden I'm fumbling and bumbling trying to think, oh yeah, what should I charge here? You know, and, and what am I worth? So it is a consideration, but you know, at the end of the day, there are some industry standards and, and, you know, um, as a flight instructor, you, you, you got to get to that point where you're not afraid to charge somebody for what it is that you're worth and what your time is worth, you know? Um, and I too, I, I, I've toiled with it over and over again and I've never had anybody balk at it. I mean, when I've told them what my price was, they're, they're like, okay, that's fine. Let's go. And, and I keep thinking, okay, maybe I should push this sometime to see if I can get somebody to say, Oh, hell no, I'm not paying you that much, but I, I don't know that I'm willing to do that because I'm happy with the way that it's unfolding now because I enjoy what I do and I enjoy the flying. And at the end of the day, it is what it is. But yeah, it, it's a it's an important consideration. Yeah, I would also add to that, uh, Tom, that's great discussion uh, that, you know, you, you went through a lot of training to become a flight instructor, you know, and, and a lot of work and, and flight training and a lot of expense. So you, you definitely don't want to, uh, you, know, you, you should, you uh, should be uh, properly compensated, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking you specifically. Yeah. I mean, as a flight instructor, you should be as a properly compensated. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't give things away for free. I mean, there's a difference between, you know, giving things away for free or like flying with a friend. I mean, that's kind of a different situation, but you know, it, then, you know, charge what you're worth figure out what you're worth and charge what you're worth. Um, I would probably add in there that, you know, undercutting your competition, you know, probably would bring bad blood potentially. I mean, that is a, I guess a common, you know, marketing technique for everything from gas stations to Walmart and everything else. But, you know, you, it, it, aviation is a small world. So, you know, that could have some backlash. You definitely want to be careful with that, but, but charge what you're worth. But yeah. It, it also, de it also depends. There, there's also a, um, a measure of it for me in what I'm flying. See, um, I was a CSIP for a while, and as a CSIP, sure. 
you know, sir, if you go through Cirrus, they're, you know, they have a day rate that they charge and it's, it's pretty steep, you know, and you break that down into what, you know, an hourly rate would come out for an instructor. I mean, so if I'm teaching a Cirrus, it's different than I'm te teaching in a Cessna or a Piper. If I'm teaching multi-engine, it's different, you know. Um, that we even the flight school I had even had a uh, a rate for a technically advanced aircraft. You know, it was a different rate than it was for their normal aircraft. So there there are more considerations than just who you are and what you're doing. It's also the amount of ratings you got and what you can do with them. So I think they all factor in. You know, Russ, one of the things I'd like to comment on is we're talking about pay rates, and this discussion came up today at the flight school is. Pre and post flight, what do you charge and how do you charge that? And I think that uh, there was some very, there was quite the passionate discussion, I guess is the best way to say it, going on. Uh, I know uh, that when I'm flying and I'm working as an independent instructor, I'm working at a flight school, uh, I definitely charge pre and post flight depending on how much time I'm actually doing the pre and post flight. In other words, how much ground I'm doing prior to the lesson, how much I'm doing after the lesson but one of the things if you're working for a flight school you have to ask them uh, what you need to do uh, but a lot of folks that are working say in the university environment uh, they don't see that pre and post flight but i will say this uh, a lot of folks will come to you and tell you hey you know you're just here to build time you shouldn't be charging me for the ground uh, my answer to that is you know this is, I'm an instructor, whether I'm in the airplane or not. Uh, so I'm teaching you how to fly an airplane. It's more than just being in the airplane. So that's why I charge the, I charge the same amount, no matter what it is, ground or flight. But I am cognizant of one thing. Um, if I'm not actually imparting knowledge or helping you in some way, I'm not charging you. So for instance, if you come and show up for my lesson and I say to you that it's a two hour lesson, hey, I have to take this phone call. Uh, do you mind going out and getting anything ready for the with the airplane? I take a phone call for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I am not going to charge for that time. Uh, I kind of feel strongly about that, but I also feel strongly about when I am imparting knowledge and I'm working with you that, that I will get paid. I'd love to hear what you guys say because uh, I know this was a very passionate discussion today we had at the flight school. So, uh, you know, Tom, do you, how do you charge? Yeah, I charge the same way, whether it's, you know, whether it's on, in flight or on the ground, but I agree with you wholeheartedly that it's, it's time that I'm spending with the student learning. Um, you know, I, I, I got all the ratings, you know, it's CFI, double I, MEI, and I also hold an AGI. So, you know, the advanced ground instructor. So it's, it's, you know, I use those things to help somebody learn how to fly. So, and uh, I will tell them, you know, it's like, before we get in the plane, it's like, all right, what do you think? That was, uh, 40 minutes on the ground. So we'll call that, you know, 0.7. How's that? Okay, sounds good. And and they already know what it, what it is I'm going to charge them. I'm not trying to bully them into anything. So like if, if somebody books a two-hour lesson with me and we only spend, you know, 20 minutes before the flight, we fly for 40 minutes, we spend another 15 minutes afterwards. I mean, quick math in my head, what does that come out to like about a one point? three or something like that, you know, that's all I'll charge them for. You know, I, I don't charge them the 2.0 just because that's what they had booked on the calendar. It's the time that I actually spent instructing them, you know, and you know, there, there's times where I've done ground school. I've had some students that it's very hard to keep them focused, you know, and it's like, you know, yeah, um, this is how we track to a VOR. And all of a sudden we're talking about a purse that his wife bought, you know, and I don't, I don't know how that happens, but it does. And all of a sudden it's like, get focused back in and let's talk about the VOR. So, there's sometimes where 
chit chat and conversation goes on that I won't charge for either, it, it, unless they are bad about it. Um, the one thing I do charge for that I will will tell you this is that when I had regularly scheduled students, um, if they show up late, that was one thing that I just could not abide by because you know my time means something, and if you know I had a student who was consistently showing up 15, 20 minutes, a half hour late, and he would start backing up my schedule for the rest of the day. And I finally made a rule of my own that um, I would allow a student to come in late once. I would have the discussion with them and say, if you do it again, I am going to charge you for it. And, and that's, that was my policy, and, and I still stick to that today. And I'll pass. So what about cancellations? I mean, I know uh, personally what I do is they always get one cancellation, you know, no-show. I guess is a better way to say it, not cancellation. Yep, and, uh, and same policy. I, I, after the first cancellation, it depends on how far in advance that they did it. I mean, the, the flight school had a, um, oh, I think it was at least a two-hour cancellation policy. If you, if you didn't uh, cancel within two hours of the flight, um, you were charged full price anyway, so... Um, but um, my own personal one is, is like, I'll, I'll, you know, all right, you know, you can't, got stuck up in a tree, that's fine, we'll cancel for today. You know, that wasn't weather related, it wasn't anything that, that would have canceled us anyway. Um, if it happens again, um, there will be a charge. And I have that conversation with them. I don't, I don't just do it, I, I make sure that they understand what's going to go on with it. So, Tom, another thing is that, and you kind of taught me this, and you're probably more savvy at this than I am, is uh, so now you finish this lesson, how did you get paid? And I'd like other people to weigh in on this. How, how do you go about that process? How do I get paid? Yeah, how does that work? Like, it's physically, how do you get paid? So, um, it, it, it's, um, you know, I, I love the electronic age because, um, you know, no longer does anybody have to show up with their... Um, checkbook or a wad of cash in their pocket. We have all sorts of happy apps now called Venmo and uh, Cash App and um, PayPal and oh my God, there's like there's so many different ways to transfer funds electronically these days that it's it's pretty hard not to get paid, you know. And I try to make those arrangements beforehand as well, and and I let people know that here's what I accept, and and I'll accept just about any one of the things I just mentioned, you know. It's and um, but it's pretty. You know, I, I, I do expect payment at the time of service, and, and that's that's uh, how it works. Yeah, I'm, I'm just like Tom. I mean, uh, uh, cash works great. I'll take a check, credit card, uh, Venmo, you know, uh, whatever they want, pretty much. Uh, y you have to. I mean, if, if you want to do business, it really helps to be able to accept however they want to pay. You know, I, I, I sometimes have struggle understanding people that oh, I only take, you know, cash or check. Well, man, then you're missing out on some of the, uh, some of the market there that, you know, I, you know, some of my guys, you know, they don't carry cash anymore. They certainly don't carry checks anymore. You know? Uh, so it's gotta be credit card or Venmo or one of the other things. Um, I've, you know, I often have people that will, that will pay up front. you know, they'll, you know, you know you well, know, I'm doing multi-engine training, so it's more expensive, you know, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll write me a, you know, a check or something like that for, you know, several lessons worth. And I'll just kind of work off the, uh, work off their balance and tell them when they're out of money that I don't mind doing that, of course. Um, but the one thing that does kind of require is you to have a good reputation and such and a good working relationship with them. Right. Cause no one's just going to write a few thousand dollar check to some dude you know, at the airport. Uh, I think, uh, one thing we've, we've kind of been talking a lot about is, 
it's kind of flight school uh, versus independent. And uh, I have primarily been an independent instructor ever since I kind of left the flight school. And that would have been, I don't know, five or six years ago. Uh, for me, that's, that's absolutely the best choice. Uh, the type of uh, flight instruction that I like to do and the, um, you know, the, the type of clientele that I have and that I've built up really lends itself well towards that. Uh, until I started this whole multi-engine thing, I did not have an aircraft or really access to an aircraft. It was entirely in the owner's aircraft, which, le- which has a whole different set of, of considerations. You know, some are good, like, um, you know, the, the aircraft always, is always available. You know, some are bad. Well, when it breaks, it, there is not a spare airplane to jump into, you know. Uh, so, you know, generally, it's, it's good that the person knows their airplane. Sometimes it's not so good because they have, you know, all their little, ah, I've been doing it this way for, you know, 20 years. I've owned this bonanza and I always do something this way. And, you know, trying to break some habits can be tough. But for me, being independent is just fantastic because I am in all kinds of different airplanes, uh, you know, whatever the owner brings is, is what I'm in. So my experience base has really uh, grown as a result of that. Uh, for other people, the flight school may be, may be a better choice too. I mean, what I don't have as an independent instructor is any other CFI support. I mean, I have, I have friends and stuff that I can talk to certainly, but nothing within, you know, within my one person flight school, <laughs> you know, if, if I can't make it, well, the person doesn't fly, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, I don't have all the the resources that you would have with, with a flight school. Uh, how about, uh, Tom, it sounds like you, you kind of are very similar to me, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I, I actually started out in the flight school. Like I said, they hired me as soon as I got my CFI. Um, it was a part 141 school. So I was uh, 141, um, pilot, uh, instructor pilot to start with. Um, I didn't get my double I until a year after my, um, initial CFI, um, in that time, my flight school got bought out by another flight school. Um, they subsequently, I, I, I got my double eye, um, started teaching the 141 there, and then they promoted me to uh, an assistant chief position in the 141 um, doing the uh, instrument. So I was a instrument uh, check airman, I guess, and, and you know the assistant chief for that part of the, the instruction. Um, was all really, really good experience. So when I left the flight school and now that I'm doing stuff independent, you know, no happy titles that go with it, but I agree with you. The, the differences are, you know, the amount, the different types of airplanes that I get to fly, the different types of clientele that I get. Um, and, you know, I, I will say this, the, the flight school was a very um, busy place to, um, you know, I was flying constantly. I was, I was going to work every day. And it was in one plane and out of another. It wasn't uncommon for me to be, you know, to do a day of flying and be in five to six different aircraft throughout the entire day. And man, I tell you what, after pre-flighting six different aircraft all day long and trying to wrap your head around all the different avionics and different performance and, and you know, and then these would be all different levels of students as well. They'd be, you know, primary students, instrument students, I had commercial students, I had CFI students, and it, it got really, really... Um, taxing there for a little while. Um, I, I don't begrudge the experience because it, it did. It gave me a lot of experience, but, um, you know, working for a flight school can be busy if it's a good flight school, you know, so that, there's that as well. Whereas being an independent, I set my own schedule. I work when I want to. And, and, you know, if it starts getting a little bit too, I don't overbook myself. So I don't get that crazy anymore. You know, I'm not going to do, I, I don't really aspire to do days where I'm going to be in five different aircraft. 
five different aircraft in a day kind of sounds fun and challenging but uh yeah it's uh yeah it can be a little bit uh, stressful there but uh yeah flight schools and independence is is just two different things you have to think about one thing i will add to that is uh, i've always wanted to do independent and uh unfortunately sometimes you just have to do it you have to uh go work for the flight school because it has to do with insurance a lot of times it's like yeah we can't take you as an independent that type of thing uh but uh bill did you have a you actually i think are working with a flight school or as an independent instructor through the flight school i can't remember yeah no i'm i'm pretty much in the same boat um independent and uh Although there's, you know, where I'm at, there's know, four flight schools on field and, and know the guys. And yeah, and that's, uh, you know, for talking to new CFIs or people who want to get into it, um, what uh, what your goals might be. If you're, if you're building time, the flight school sure is the way to go. Like, uh, you know, Tom mentioned, you're in and out and in and out. Um, but that's what you're doing. You're in and out, in and out. And it might not be a lot of different airplanes. It might be in and out and in and out of the same Cessna 172 all day long. But you're going to meet. You're going to build up a lot of time, and if that's your goal, that's it. And you know, as independent, I I don't have any problem with if somebody wants to spend two hours on the ground going through all the fine points of their POH of their airplane. I can do that. And that's something I could do as an independent that you're probably not going to be able to do. You know, at least in a big 141 school or you know, a busy 141 school, it's just not going to be um, very uh, very practical. And uh, yeah, same thing. We, you know, we're, you're going to see uh, as an independent a lot of different kinds of airplanes. I'm in the same boat. I'm in uh, a lot of very interesting, different kind of airplanes with folks. Um, but uh, and again, I'm in the same boat as Russ. I've got a real job too, a day job. So we're not uh, you're not there all day, um, able to hop in and out. So some of that's just what you're looking for as a as a CFI. Are you a career changer? Are you a new person starting out? Uh, although I'll say I. I probably wouldn't mind going under the umbrella of a school uh, just to get that um, you know get that fresh experience back i think the last time i worked for a part 141 school it was a it was a different century so <laughs> sounds good yeah <laughs> no i literally was a different century yeah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to add in there this kind of goes along with something that tom was saying a little bit of util bill was that the you know as an independent the when you're at the flight school, you're just getting fed these students often and you you can fly all day long as much as you want. And in some cases, if you're with a busy enough school, I mean, I, I know guys out at the, the local airport that I'm at a lot. They, some of these guys, man, they're, they're flying, you know, like, like Tom was saying, you know, four or five flights a day, which is great if you're trying to build time, you know, uh, if that's not your concern, then, you know, maybe that's not what you want. Uh, in my case as, as an independent, you know, I, I kind of get to set my own schedule, like Tom said. This also does carry the risks with it, though, of, well, I don't have anybody to fly with. <laughs> you know, I, I got to go do go out and do some more marketing and, uh, you know, see if see who else might want to fly with me, you know, because I don't have anything this week or something like that. So that isn't always as much of a problem in a flight school environment. I mean, sometimes it can be. Granted, there are there are flight schools that are that are slower than others. We're acting as if they're all, you know, you know, have a hundred students and three instructors or something. But you know, that's certainly not the case. Uh, but the other thing, not to you know, kind of, you know, really stress how much I like being an independent instructor. Although I think I've done that enough already, is that uh, flying an owner's airplanes is really um, you know, liberating sometimes. When you're flying for a flight school and you know that that person's paying you $150 an hour for, for that Cherokee, uh, the way you approach the training 
even if you're trying to train someone you know, on everything they might possibly need to know for private or instrumental or, or whatever, you always have in the back of your mind that that time you know constraints and hey. You know, I, I'd love to go do this other flight, but you know, and that's going to cost a guy another five hundred bucks. <laughs> that kind of thing. They're not. They're never going to go for it. When you're flying in an owner's airplane, of course, generally the owners want to fly. You know, they and it's really just you know the marginal cost of the uh, flight is the gas for it, really. Uh, so, yeah, I've gone on some some training flights that are way longer and more interesting than I ever went on in a flight school. I mean, from here in Oklahoma City. Uh, you know, Dallas, the whole Dallas area is wonderful to go to for instrument training. I mean, you get to fly arrival routings and all the vectors and all this kind of stuff. But in a standard training airplane, that's a long trip. I mean, you know, it, it's we're talking minimum three-hour round trip just to get down there and come back, let alone do anything else. Uh, but if you're flying in, a say, a Bonanza or something, man, that's uh, that's pretty enjoyable. You go down there, have some have some lunch or dinner, you know, you know, fly some departure procedures, the whole thing. So you can do a lot of, a lot of different things in an owner flown airplane than, uh, than maybe you probably wouldn't do in a flight school airplane, which to me is a great benefit. But, uh, uh, Carl, you want to wrap uh, this up? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You said it's amazing as an independent, some of the things that you get to do, but even in a flight school, sometimes they grab an instructor and say, Hey, let's, you know, let's go. Can you fly this for me? Uh, what, just one thing there, just be careful. What, what kind of agreements you sign with the flight school and see if you can actually do something independently. Uh, but, you know, this is an awesome discussion, and I think what we need to do is uh, continue this. And this actually is a two-part series. should mention that in the beginning. Uh, we have a whole second part to this. We're going to talk about a lot of other things like insurance, the type of students, uh, different marketing techniques and uh, creating your, your niche and that type of thing, how to keep current as a CFI, etc. cetera. Uh, but this is was an awesome awesome uh you know discussion here uh but we will add to this uh on the next episode uh and we're going to talk a little bit more about being an independent instructor and also about uh, working for a flight school delve into certain things like insurance and how you get paid and those type of things uh in the next episode along with all those other things i discussed and i'm really happy that uh, russ brought this up because i think uh one of the things that people that are passionate about flying they want to share that passion and they wind up becoming flight instructors because they want to share that passion and, and what better way to promote general aviation than to have more flight instructors out there and promoting the world in aviation i just love it one of the things that we i think we we talked about a little bit but i think we really need to solidify and also understand a little bit more is the day rate versus hourly rates and i'm going to start this off first uh, just to talk about uh, what I've done as an example on a day and hourly rate and uh, what you guys can look forward to. It varies. Now, obviously, an hourly rate, let's talk about the simple one first. That's how most flight instructors are paid, by the hour. You work an hour, you get paid for an hour. Now, some people are, and we talked a little bit about this, are confused as far as, you know, when do they get paid? Do they get paid just for the flight or do they get paid for the ground instruction? And we did talk about that where, yes, you get paid the whole time you're instructing most of the time, but there are some flight schools that don't charge for that. So if you're doing a debrief, you're doing a pre-flight, you're, you're actually just doing a, just a ground lesson, uh, you should be getting paid for those hours. Mostly it's the same a rate, but there are some flight schools that do change that. And also as an independent, you can change that yourself. So again, an hourly rate is simply... While you're instructing, you're getting paid by the hour. 
Something that gets a little more confusing, I think, is the day rate. And um, that's something that I think that you can kind of look at it from this viewpoint. There's an opportunity cost to you doing a, a day rate. In other words, you're giving up your day to go fly for somebody, but you're also guaranteed that money per day. So if you look at an eight hour day, you could ask for the eight hours of <laughs> flying time per hour. But what's probably going to happen is uh, when you're asking for a rate for the whole day, there you're going to have to negotiate that. So a day rate basically is, is something a lot of folks use both in the flight instructing world and also in the corporate world. They hire pilots for that day. The way that I've used it is I used to work for a, an oil company and I would do their flight instructing and I would do some of their reviews and they would pay me a certain amount of money per day. We'll talk a little bit about how much you get paid because back then I was getting paid $100 a day uh, to actually fly with this person to, to build time for that individual and also to do their flight reviews for the people there. That's a little bit different. I mean, nowadays uh, things have changed, especially if you specialize uh, for day rates as far as like a Cirrus and that type of thing. Uh, so again, it's something that I normally, what I tell people is if you're going to do a day rate, you know, start high. If you're going to be tied up for the whole day, if it's a six or eight hour day you normally work, you know, ask for that. Uh, you can always negotiate down from there. Uh, but uh, normally what happens is uh, you're going to get paid a little bit less uh, than your hourly rate for an eight-hour day. Not always, though. Uh, if you look at, and I'm going to ask Tom to kind of speak up a little bit about this one. I know in in the Cirrus world, that is a little bit different. I mean, they those guys get paid some amazing uh, amounts uh, as far as uh, that day rate. But anyway, that's a simplification of the day rate. I do do day rates on, a, on some other things, and uh, but I want to hear some, uh, some of your comments there. So I'm going to start with Tom. Uh, as far as day rates, what has been your experience? And if you could, uh, I know you have a little experience in the Cirrus world. Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, so um, you're, you're correct with the hourly rate and um, you know charging for flight or ground and whether you're working for somebody or whether you're independent, um, it's all structured a little differently. Obviously, if you're working for a flight school, you're going to be sharing that money with whoever owns that flight school. Um, if you're an independent, you're probably going to be able to charge and keep most of the money yourself. Um, the um, hourly and day rate, um, you know, the day rate um, comes down to, you know, what are you going to charge? The way that I figured mine out is like, what am I going to charge per hour? And, you know, what is a, a full day? So just to keep the math simple, I kept made a full day, 10 hours, you know, so that was, that was my, that's my day rate, um, compared to my, um, hourly rate. And that's what I've changed, uh, what I put into it. Um, one of the other things that came to my mind also is that, that, you know, as an independent flight instructor, I've had opportunities where I've traveled to go work with somebody. And, um, you know, so now you're including expenses as well. So now it's a day rate plus expenses, you know. So if I'm specifically leaving my house to go teach somebody, you know, I mean, and this is agreed upon beforehand with the with the pilot that I'm working with. But generally, you know, they'll pay my day rate and they'll pay for my lodging and for food for the day, you know, so, um, that, that becomes part of it as well. And how do you keep track of all that and what are you going to charge for it? And what's, you know, what's a good, um, um, rate to do that. And, you know, you just go by looking out there, you can talk to other CFIs. There's, there was bunches of different ways, you know, um, I had students that at one point told me, you don't charge enough. You're selling yourself short, you know? So I had to look at it and I was, I was probably, you know, um, not charging enough for my services, you know, um, it, 
took a lot of effort and time and resources to get to where I was at. And, you know, I, I should be compensated for what it is that I'm doing. And and that's what you got to come to in, in this whole thing. What are you willing to work for as an hourly rate? What are you willing to work for as a day rate? Are, you know, um, are you going to make sure that somebody covers your expenses if you're going above and beyond where you normally fly out of? And those are some of the thoughts I had. Yeah, I've got some things I can add on there, Tom. I, you did a real good job. Uh, like not a whole lot. Kind of repeated what I was going to say. So good job. But um, the the thing with the the day rate, is, and I do charge a day rate sometimes, depending like kind of like you said, you know, depending on what we're working on and what who the client is. Um, you're not going to get a lot of the day rate stuff. You know, training private pilots, for example. I mean, it just doesn't really work too well. I'm sure there are some examples where it does, but you know, you got intensive training. A person can only fly so much in a day, right? Before they're mentally exhausted. So you're so that's not really where you see the day rates. Where I see a lot more of the day rates is is the transition training, the new air uh, new airplane stuff. Uh, you know, new avionics. Some guy puts in you know all new glass panel or something. You know, you know, he doesn't mind taking a kind of a real trip somewhere. You know, taking a whole day to do it and learn all about the the equipment. So that's where I see a lot of the day rate stuff. I mean, if if you start getting into the uh, you know recurrent training type thing, you know, we're going to talk about. Uh, making a niche later, but you know, there are guys, you know, doing, you know, you buy a, a TBM or something, right? Well, you hire the guy to come out and, and do the insurance required training with you. That's generally all at a day rate. And some of these day rates are, you know, pretty good. You know, we're not talking, you know, $30 an hour times eight hours or anything. We're talking a thousand dollars a day or, you know, somewhere in that range for some of these kind of things. So, uh, that's also a lot of how the, um, you know the the corporate environment works, or the uh, the contract pilot, I should say, kind of what uh, what Carl touched on before. You know, if, so usually I'd say once you get into this type of regime, you might be doing some contract pilot work as well. So you kind of have an idea of what your day rate is from what your you know uh, clients are willing to pay for you to pilot the airplane, and you can kind of transfer that likely over to. Same as flight instruction, because understand, of course, like uh, like you both mentioned, if you're spending a whole day with a, a client, that's a whole day you can't spend with anybody else, right? So you, you do deserve to be to be compensated for your time. Uh, Tom, you had something else. Yeah, and and it just occurred to me that you know the the level of what you're going to charge for each of those, whether it's a day rate or an hourly rate, is also to pay depend upon what you're doing. I mean, Carl had mentioned um, the Cirrus as I was a CSIP for a little while. Um, you know, Cirrus has a a base day rate that they get for you know uh, for their transition trainings. Um, when I train somebody in just a single engine aircraft, the rate's going to be different than if I do in a multi-engine aircraft. Does that aircraft, as Russ was just saying, have, you know, a bunch of uh, technically advanced equipment inside of it? That's also going to play into um, how this goes. You know, I mean, I, I try to keep it simple. And that's that's what I was trying to get at here is, is that there's all these different levels and all these different things. But at the end of the day, I try to keep it simple so that I don't like get myself completely confused on what I'm charging, who and when and why, you know? So, um, that's, that's kind of what the, the trick is in all of this for me is to just try to keep everything, um, in, in some form of simplicity. 
That's some great points, guys. And, uh, you know, to clarify, when I was working on a day rate uh, for this oil company, I kind of wanted a job with the company. So I think I gave them a, a really good deal. But uh, uh, I was doing uh, transition training, I guess was the best way to say it primarily. Uh, when someone when they would buy an aircraft uh, for their sales person that's out there, I would actually help them gain their hours. So a lot of times it was kind of a little bit of babysitting, a little bit of transition training, uh, but it uh, it was really a lot of fun uh, for me. But I do hear this from a lot of instructors here. They say, hey, you know, uh, someone's going to hire me as an instructor for the day. A lot of times we get confused as to if you're an instructor or a pilot uh, for them. If you're signing their logbook and you're doing training, yeah, you are a flight instructor. And that's what we're primarily talking about now. There is that line, though, you cross. Now you're a commercial pilot for somebody. And that's a whole different discussion about day rates and flying and how we do that in the in the quote-unquote corporate world and that varies tremendously based on the type of aircraft and the type of training you're doing so but in this discussion we're just talking to about day rates I have an airplane I want to be I want you to fly with me in the airplane and do ground training for the whole day I want you for a week and you're mine that kind of thing and that's what we're talking about as far as day rates Great stuff, guys. Uh, I think that's it on that discussion. I really uh, I hope we now understand what we're talking about day versus hourly rates, and we're talking about flight instructing as far as day rates. Good stuff. Well, let's move on to the, to the next topic, and this is the one that we've been getting a lot of questions about. We touched on it a little bit uh, last episode, but the difference between the type of employee you are, whether you work for a flight school or as an independent instructor. So just just let's just clarify flight school versus independent instructor first. Uh, a flight school means you're actually working uh, for somebody, a specific flight school. An independent instructor means that someone doesn't control your day. Uh, you can maybe show up at a flight school as an independent instructor, uh, part-time usually, uh, but you're not under the control of that flight school. A good example, I'm like that. I'm an independent instructor. I'll go in and I'll instruct at a flight school, and it's a different relationship than another flight school where I work as an employee and they kind of control my, my schedule because I say, hey, I'm, I'm available for these. You know, these are my days on, and you can fill up my schedule type of thing. So those are kind of two different things there. Um, and, and one of the things that we have to understand is that there's many, many ways of getting paid. So um, I'm going to have, you know, some of the other folks that have done different things. I know Russ said you primarily work uh, as an employee. I think Sean works as an employee. Uh, that is actually where you wind up getting an hourly rate uh, and maybe a guaranteed number of hours per day, and then you get paid uh, at the end of the day. So uh, as far as, you know, that could also include insurance and that type of thing. But when you're working for a school, you can do it both those ways. You can do it on a 1099, uh, basically as an independent or as an employee. But uh, anyway, Russ, so to clarify, um, are you working as an employee or as an independent instructor? No, I, I am completely independent. Uh, I have worked as an employee in the past. My first uh, flight instruction job was as a, a W-2 <laughs> paid employee, I guess you could call it. Uh, and then I worked for for a while with a different flight school as a as a 1099 contractor. Now, these are terms that people were unfamiliar with. I mean, a, an employee would be paid just like you know, any other job. If you work at you know, Walmart or you know, whatever, you, you get paid on a W-2 and they take out 
you know, taxes and all that kind of stuff. But a, a contractor to a flight school, which is one of one of the ways that uh, that an independent flight instructor can work at a flight school, might be paid on a 1099, which means they're just being paid here. This this is your contract amount. You got paid this amount uh, for this amount of, amount of hours. You know, this month or year, or whatever. And uh, you're responsible for all your own taxes and stuff. So that that makes a a big difference when we we start talking about billing and yeah, you know, we talked about how much you should charge for your hourly rate, but how you're getting paid actually has, has quite a bit of an effect on that. Uh, the, the really the third way is, is strictly independent where I'm not really being, I'm not really contracting for a school per se. I'm just working directly with the aircraft owners and the clients and they just pay me directly. So, uh, I don't, do we want to talk about a little bit of the, the tax benefits here or not? I mean, none of us are CPAs as far as I know. but <laughs> You know, Russ, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and uh, as far as uh, W-2 the and, and uh, contractor, and we'll, then we'll go into a little bit about the different ways that you can get paid. Um, as a contractor, there are a lot of different ways I'm about to get into. Uh, but it's, it's really important for people to also understand if you are going to work as a flight instructor, there may be restrictions, say, even if you're working part-time by your current employer. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that I, I actually work for a flight school on a W-2 basis. But what I had to do, I had to go to the airline that I work for, had to go through a whole process, get approval to work at that specific place. And I have to renew that every 12 months, that, that actual certification that I can actually go, permission, excuse me, that I can go work for them. Um, so so there, there's that part of it, too. You have to understand if you're getting benefits, they're taking taxes out, et cetera, um, then you are working directly for them. Out of 1099, you got to do a lot of that yourself. As far as the different ways that you can form this relationship and say, and this question comes up a lot as far as an individual flight instructor as a business. A lot of times when you say you are a contractor, you can also uh, do this a little bit differently. And this is where I feel, uh, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this one, I feel you really need to talk to your accountant. So for instance, for me, you know, I have this podcast, I have career counseling, I also have my flight instructing. That is all under my one umbrella in my business and my corporation, which I formed, and I directly bill uh, the different flight schools normally, except for the one that I'm on a W-2 basis with. It makes life easier for me on accounting basis, and I put everything into that corporation. What type of corporation do you need to have? Again, you got to go back to your accountant, the S-Corp, the C-Corp, the LLC. You, and, and again, I am nowhere going to get close to that. I've had all. I've had an S-Corp. I've had a C-Corp. C-Corp was a little bigger, and we had you know fringe benefits for employees where we had you know cars and stuff like that. That's a whole other ballgame. And boy, that could we could sit here for well, we could sit here and do like a whole other podcast just on that. Uh, so those are the kind of things you have to you know look at. What are they, let's just talk though from our perspective as an instructor. What are the the downsides and the benefits to that? Of course, the benefits are uh, from a tax basis. Uh, it's terrific for me personally. Uh, and again, you talk to your accountant. But the downside here's the downside. Now you're responsible for more paperwork. 1099, you're responsible for paperwork. It's a lot easier than if you say you have your own corporation or LLC. There's a little more paperwork involved, and that's where I feel it's a big, uh, or not a big, it's a negative. I'll be honest with you. 
I really don't like doing paperwork like that. And I wind up, I try to get up at four or five o'clock in the morning and read and just start doing that paperwork that early in the morning for that corporation. So uh, what are the benefits? You know, why, why would a, a school do that? Uh, I'm going to give you an example why a school would want to do like a corp to court bill or you, you bill their business from your corporation the reason they do that is they don't have any paperwork then. You are a direct expense, just like paying the light bill. They're just paying you as a corporation. So that's how it makes it easier for that flight school. And some flight schools don't like it, and that has to do with, uh, and I, this is actually something I've run across a lot recently and ha has more to do with insurance. We'll talk a little bit of insurance next, but as far as um, the other folks here, have you... Uh, and I think, I'm not sure, Tom, so you can uh, let me know. Did you form your own business when you do your independent uh, instructing and the instructing you do on your on your own out there with individuals? Yes. And actually, I formed my own business when, it, when I was still working for the flight school because I was a 1099 employee, which basically made me a contractor. And it, it was at that time, you know, my accountant had, um, you know, advised me that, you know, maybe starting a um, – uh, an S corp would be a good good avenue for me, and and that was based on my finances and the way that I was doing business. Um, I also am a, uh, I also have an aviation job where I'm a W two employee, you know, and then I have one where I'm just an independent contractor, which you know, and so it all kind of goes under the umbrella of, of that um, that S corp, and that's that's the way that it worked out better for me. So um, you know, you were talking a little bit about you know benefit um, working for a flight school or being independent, you know, and other than what we're talking about here with some of the pay stuff, you know, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of considerations that I thought was thinking of in there as well. You know, I mean, being an independent, I'm kind of out here by on my own, you know, I've got to be, um, uh, up on everything and, and whatever I find out, it's just me. That was the one benefit that I thought was in a flight school was that, um, you know, I had all other resources. Now the pay wasn't as good because, you know, I had to share my pay with, with the flight school itself. So, you know, that that thought of working for a flight school or being an independent, you know, that was one of the one of the top benefits or or um, detractors that I had for me when I was thinking of go out, going out on my own. And the benefits uh, to touch on that, the flight schools that you work for when you're a contractor, obviously you, you normally don't get those kind of benefits, but that's a that's a huge thing. If you need medical benefits and you go work for a flight school that has medical benefits. Uh, that I think is very appealing to many of us, and I, and that could sway your decision uh, based on whether you have medical benefits or not. I know it did for me. Uh, one of my first instructing jobs, I had medical benefits. Uh, for the most part, though, that wasn't included. Uh, maybe three out of the ten flight schools I've worked for have had medical benefits, and that's something else to think about as the difference between doing a, a corporation or uh, working as a W-2. Let's talk a little bit about insurance. I'd love to hear uh, some feedback from you guys as far as would your, if a flight school is looking at you, would they let you work as a contractor, and how does that work as far as insurance is concerned? I know one of the schools I work for said no way. Uh, no 1099 uh, because of our insurance the way it is we're going to set you up as a w-2 uh, so russ i'm, I'm kind of curious there if you're on a 1099 as far as when no, the insurance we're talking about by the way is like liability insurance that type of thing um, how is it that they came to an agreement with you do you provide them insurance or do they have the insurance as a 1099 
Well, in the past, when I was working for different flight schools, is it was uh, insurance has changed a lot in the last few years, as you know, as uh, we've talked about on the show before. But uh, in the past, I was covered by the uh, by the flight schools insurance, and so you know, ten and I an employee or you know, or otherwise. But uh, I, I guess that's just how that was structured. Uh, currently, since I'm not you know, associated with a flight school, you know, I have my own insurance. You know, it's uh, it's labeled you know CFI insurance, and it's very similar to the insurance you would have if you were renting an airplane, kind of thing. But except for it also covers uh, uh, instructional liability, like I guess you'd say. And I'm certainly not the the insurance expert. We have one of those on this show, but unfortunately, she's not able to make it today. Uh, but, but uh, maybe we could do another episode sometime about that. But yeah, so I do carry my own insurance, and it's it's really not very expensive for the uh, the amount of flying I'm doing, which is which is very, which is nice. You know, mentioning that, my, let's put a shout out first for those folks there. It's air-pros.com. It's where Victoria works. She has some cool videos out there and a description as far as. Uh, what type of insurance you need as a flight instructor. It's flight instructor insurance, that type of thing. Uh, so that's really what you have to look towards is is that insurance. And also, uh, when you're when you're actually teaching, depending on the type of airplane you're teaching in, uh, you may have to get additional insurance, and that's uh, something that you really need to look into. Uh, I know, Bill, you uh, have done some different type of insurance, but just or d- different type of instructing. But is there any difference in the type of insurance that you've had to get uh, besides just general uh, flight instructor insurance, Bill? Yeah, um, actually, yeah. My my, you mentioned Air Pros. That's where I that's where I get my policy from with with Victoria. Um, and um, I, we got a. Um, she set you up actually if you're a, a member of uh, Safe that that organization. What is that? Society of Aviation Flight Educators. A nice discount. Um, we put together uh, a renter and CFI, like independent CFI insurance, um, for me. And uh, you know, I had to go through a couple of things. I'm uh, I'm working in with one client with a pressurized airplane, so we did need a, a, a rider with that. Um, so you do have to be very careful when you look at your insurance to make sure if you are, especially freelancers, um, that your uh, the type aircraft or the type of instruction that you're um, giving is actually covered by the basic. Uh, policy. So make sure you read through all of that very carefully, or work with your um, um, agent on that. And you know, sometimes you may also run into um, a situation where you could be covered under the owner's insurance. They could name you on the insurance as an instructor, or a club may have um, their policy may allow you know a uh, an independent instructor. But um, very important to read through all of those to make sure that they they do cover you. Don't fall through some uh, strange little quirk. Yeah, good point there, Bill. Um, Sean, now as far as you're concerned, uh, what type of instructor are you? And, and as far as insurance is concerned, uh, do you have to carry any extra insurance? Yeah, um, I'm currently teaching uh, two private pilot students. Um, that's uh, kind of all I've ventured into uh, thus far. Um, 
But uh, our school has uh, standardized insurance plans um, through a, a local place here in Utah. So everyone who is uh, who is an instructor through the school has to carry a certain level of coverage, and they've got a, a plan there at that school. The school, or I, I'm sorry, at the uh, company, they know that if you say I'm an instructor at X school, that uh, they know which plan to set you up with. Um, so it's currently I just teach in a in a Skyhawk private pilot maneuver, so I don't have to have any any extra insurance that somebody you know flying a more uh, high-performance uh, aircraft or aerobatics or anything like that might have to carry. Uh, mine's pretty basic. And that's the kind of insurance. You have to buy that on your own, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm trying to remember how much it cost me. It's it's not very much at all. It's, it's I think, uh, two or three hundred a year. Um, so it's, it's not too much. You know, and I'm glad you brought that up because, in general, the CFI insurance is very inexpensive compared to what it covers you for. I highly recommend you getting the insurance. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of people say, say to me, well, I have errors and omissions in my, in my business. It's like, no, no, go talk to somebody, your insurance agent about it, and ask them specifically if something happens while you're instructing. Will your errors and omissions cover that? Uh, I've heard that a few times, so there might be a little bit of confusion there. So please talk to your insurance agent about that. Uh, Tom, do you now? Do you carry? I'm assuming you carry uh, CFI insurance, or is there any? Or is there another type of insurance that you carry? No, I carry CFI insurance, and I carry a renter's insurance. And um, you know, I started doing those because one of the things I was thinking about with this is um, when I was working for as a contractor for a flight school, um, it was through the process of asking questions that I figured out that yes, I was covered as a CFI through the flight school. However, there was um, a $10,000 deductible that I didn't know about that I would have been responsible for. And that's what I carried insurance for was to cover the deductible um, for the flight school's insurance. Um, there was a certain level that I would have been, like I said, responsible on the uh, should an incident have happened. Um, and so I kept insurance to cover that responsibility as well. And then, you know, I mean, since I already had CFI insurance, I kept good insurance the whole time I was working for the flight school. And then just, it was a no brainer to, to, you know, just make sure I checked with the, uh, policy and make sure that, uh, I had the proper insurance when I started teaching independently. So uh, Tom, to, cl to clarify that, so you actually are paying for two different insurance, a CFI and also a renters to cover that $10,000 difference. Like you said, um, they're, they're basically the same policy, Carl. It was, it was something that we put together with the adjuster. You, you tell them what kind of flying that you're doing, what, where, how are you using airplanes and all that stuff. And then they put in all the different riders to, to make sure that it's, uh, um, like I said, Victoria is the expert on this one. Um, I'm not quite sure. I'll just know that I, uh, wanted to make absolutely sure that I asked the questions that I would be covered in whatever contingencies that, uh, go along with the hazards of my profession, if you will. Interesting, yeah, and a good point, Tom. You really got to uh, call your insurance agent. I mean, it's uh, aviation insurance agent is really important. Somebody to talk to, you know. And again, air-pros.com, uh, some great people to go talk to. By the way, we're not sponsored by them. It's just our friend Victoria, who uh, who works for them. Wonderful people over there. They're very friendly, and they answer these kind of questions we're asking. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you know, if you want, we could just do a whole episode just on that on insurance, and not just insurance for CFIs, but maybe maybe for aircraft and that type of thing. And the one other thing I want to stress, too, that I think Tom and Russ and, and Bill all brought up here is the fact that when you're instructing in something that 
you think is out of the quote-unquote ordinary, like it's not a, a single engine, a 172, make sure you have the insurance uh, for that specific aircraft. Uh, so if it is something that is a little bit different, uh, you make sure you are covered. And you'd be surprised at sometimes uh, what type of aircraft will actually require extra insurance. Uh, so if you're teaching in a specific type of multi-engine and you're covered for multi-engine, that one specific multi-engine you're teaching in, say it's a 421, a Cessna 421, you may need additional insurance and maybe additional training. So definitely uh, check into that. Some great discussion though on the insurance and it's something I really highly recommend people look into. You know, now moving on uh, from insurance, we also have to, you know, we talked about all the different flight schools versus, you know, being an independent, that type of thing. But there's something that's really, really important. And without this, we wouldn't have a job. And that's the student. And the, the, the most important person out there is that student. And we have to look at the type of student that we're marketing towards. And for instance, for me, I don't do a bunch of primary, but a lot of the people that I train and, the, and what I get paid for the most is helping people transition to an airline job and that type of thing. Um, and I do some instrument training, that, that type of thing. But it's all these different focus groups, that, and, and that's where we look at as far as what type of student we're going to train towards. Uh, primary students, uh, those are the people that are learning how to fly. Those are the type of students that I feel, and this is my opinion, I'd love to hear what you guys think, I feel is one of the most important students out there for this reason. You are about to engage in this new journey in this person's life, and that new journey is aviation. What you do at this point is so important to forming them as an aviator, but also their attitudes towards aviation. Because we all know, we've heard the stories of people going to a flight school, maybe looking for a flight, an intro to flight, and getting totally turned off to aviation, even though they've had this love all their life of aviation, they thought they wanted to fly, but because of that experience, it really, really turned them off. Uh, for, and this is the primary student, someone that's, that's just first learning how to fly. Their attitudes, um, and, and th it's funny, because these are soft skills. These are the, the relationship you make with, with this primary student, because once you get past primary, they're in. You know, they're like, hey, I'm going on for the, my, my, my instrument, my multi, whatever it may be. I'm kind of curious as to, you know, uh, you've heard me say this before, what people do as far as the primary student, how to engage and how to attract a primary student. Uh, and, and what you, you know, how do you treat them possibly different uh, from a student that is already involved in aviation and they want their instrument rating and they're, they're incredibly focused. I know what I do. I try to make it fun uh, for them as much as possible because that's why they're getting involved in this. So, uh, so Bill, I, you know, going back to what I was saying about um, the introductory flights and, and that primary student, first of all, you know, what type of intro flights, uh, what do you do with a new student? And do you have any good or bad stories as far as intro flights are concerned? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've given discovery flights for a long time, and I've, I've heard and heard of some uh, some that definitely turned people off. It's uh, it's amazing. You really do. You, you touched on that, Carl, about um, try to know uh, or at least figure out the student, where they're coming from, what they want. Um, you know, it wasn't long ago I uh, I had a discussion with a, a you know, friend of the family who was um, – 
fellow with plenty of disposable income, that wasn't going to be an issue. And, you know, we were just talking about flying and he related this story of years ago. I'm, I don't know. He was, he was younger. Maybe he was in college or something like that. I said, oh, you know, I thought I wanted to go and, you know, learn how to fly that, that looked cool. And his whole story was really about what a bad experience it was, how he was like, oh, no, it wasn't like that. You know, like when you ride on an airline, it was, it was like they were really steep and, and it was really noisy and all this. And, the the uh, the person who gave him that intro ride didn't didn't give him any knowledge at all about what to expect. You know, people come into this, and you know, we kind of think we're very comfortable, we're very familiar with uh, with small aircraft, with general aviation aircraft. But um, the person who's just coming in for a discovery flight, they don't really know, and and or what they do know is what they see on the internet or on TV, and you know, who knows what kind of uh, information that is they might be apprehensive so um and that actually inspired me i've i've made myself a um a, you know a new pilot or a new person new passenger uh, sort of checklist way beyond everybody knows you know the safety briefing right that you're supposed to give to a passenger but far beyond that so people know what to expect um all the way down to just how to behave around the airport and it's not a lecture but just hey here's you know be involved with them and and let them know what's going to happen so that they're not they're not surprised or they're not scared and you know that that guy, that poor guy he he was turned off aviation for many many years i'm thinking maybe i got the hook back in him now but uh he was. He was. He could have been. Uh, he could have been a pilot twenty years ago. So, Tom, I think uh, you want. Yeah. You had a good example of a of an intro or a discovery flight. Sure. You know, and 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 Bill's absolutely right. You know, I mean, it's like somebody comes in the. I, I've flown a lot of them too. Working for a flight school, it was a. You know, um, you know, it's one of the other nice things about working for a flight school is like the students come to you, you know, and, and they're, they're looking, seeking out the flight school and, and they're, um, there's plenty of them. So I, I would get discovery flights and people would come up and I had several that would show up and that you could just tell, you could see the look on their face that they were doing this, but they were not sure about it. They were not sure at all, you know, and being able to calm them down and take them out. And I, it's, it's happened more than once where I've taken somebody out and taken the t- time to let them touch things on the plane and explain to them what they do and explain to them what they can expect and how the plane's going to react when it's in the air and what we're going to see and what they're going to be able to do. And, you know, it's like I tell them I'm going to put them on the controls and let them fly the airplane. And they look at me like, oh, oh no, there's no way, you know. And, of course, by the time we get out there and I get them on the controls, you know, by the time we're heading back to the airport and it's time to land, it's like, okay, I got to have the controls now so that I can land the airplane, you know, and they're like, oh, can't we just go another 10 minutes or so? And, and to see that in somebody, somebody who showed up, you could see the fear in their eyes. And by the time they got out of the airplane, they were, they were, you know, just bubbling about aviation, you know, then, then, you know, that you've done your job right. And, and it should be like that every time, I think. Uh, that's an excellent story, Tom. I, I really, and I believe that too, is that you're introducing to this so it's such a foreign world. And, and that attitude, Tom, that you have, it really shines and it helps us as an industry too, obviously. Um, and one of the things I tell people is when you're doing your intro flight, give it two hours, even if it's a half hour flight, because there's so many questions that they have. And I can't tell you how many people have said to me afterwards, gosh, you know, I picked you as a flight instructor because you're the one that spent all the time with me and you talk to me. And be inviting, too, of everybody that walks into the airport. You know, go over to the fence, go over to the door and try to find those people and say, hey, come on in. You know, check this out. And, and you know, the, it's it's great. I mean, it's wonderful to be in this, this environment and we really welcome you here. 
talked a little bit about uh, the primary student now and getting people interested. And I think a lot of folks are are there looking at this saying, okay, how about everybody else? Well, we do have others. We have your advanced and usually, and I talked about what I do with the instrument, but there's other like commercial. And Russ, I think all you have actually, I, I think, concentrated on, uh, I think it's a multi-engine or something like that. So tell us a little bit about some of those other type of students that, that you actually focus on and, and any others in the list that are types we should talk about. Yeah, that's right, Carl. I and we'll talk. Uh, next topic is about kind of creating a niche, and I've seen to have kind of done that recently. And most of my work uh, this year, well, 2020 anyway, has been uh, has been these you know commercial ratings, multi-engine ratings, and 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 in another category I'll mention here in a second. But uh, these the the main difference here, of course, with with primaries is that well, number one. They're already pilots. You don't need to convince them you know, why they need to be pilots. So there, there's not there's not that uh, that type of discussion. But I, I really enjoy working with a lot of these folks because you know they they are existing pilots. They they kind of know the basics. Uh, although it is it is amazing and wonderful. You know when you sign someone off for that first solo, you know it's great to see the you know like uh, like I think uh, Tom was talking about that that spark in their eyes. You know it's also a lot of fun flying with someone who does know how to fly the airplane. You're teaching them something new. So uh, all these people, of course, are coming, you know, they're voluntarily, at least in my experience, I haven't had anybody forced to, to fly. <laughs> but uh, so the, uh, so just the, the type of flying we get to do is a little more varied, I think, in, in my opinion. I have done quite a lot of instrument training. I haven't done much of that in the last couple of years just because of my focus has been elsewhere. But, uh, but just exposing existing pilots to new things is is really exciting for me and, and letting them see hey this is the the next step in, in you know, my career path i guess uh, the other thing that that i have been doing a lot of and i've always done a lot of, i'm sure this is true for the other guys too is is these you know training that doesn't necessarily lead to a rating uh you know proficiency training refresher training uh, the person you know buys a new gps or or they bought a new GPS and they've never used one before. You know, they did their instrument rating uh, before GPS or something like that, or putting a new autopilot or, or 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 new airplane or who knows any of this kind of stuff. I I really enjoy that type of thing too because every specific client and every airplane I get into is configured differently, has a different background, and it's a tailored training program, a tailored syllabus for for every single <laughs> every single client and that that that's interesting and exciting and, and definitely uh, gets me out of a rut, I, I guess. You know, sometimes we tend to get that when we're just following the same syllabus for the same folks over and over again. But uh, I really do enjoy that kind of training as well. And, well, honestly, as a flight instructor, it's nice because there's no check right at the end <laughs> you know, in a lot of these. So, uh, so, so it's, it's a whole lot of fun. And, and honestly, that, that results in a little less stress for the client as well. So that actually is uh, something that we sometimes don't think about. I mean, basically, that person that's not getting a rating, a proficiency, refresher. Um, I'm curious, Russ, do you, have you ever worked with somebody who, say, got a, a panel redone? Because I know there's people that really specifically work with people that, say, got the, I don't know, a G1000 or something in their aircraft. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Carl. I, that's that's one of the things that I, I do really enjoy. And actually I have a client right now. We were in his airplane uh, just a few days ago and he was, 
yeah, it was it was a new airplane to him. So we're we're kind of running down the the equipment. So I'm like, I tell him this doesn't quite work out work as it should. You know, something needs to be adjusted here, and this display is not quite right, and that kind of thing. Just you know, some minor squawks. And every time I said something, it's like I don't care. I'm getting it all torn out. <laughs> You know, in a couple of months, it's all going to be, it's all going to be brand new. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's going to go all glass and all that kind of thing. So for him, you know, I will have to look at exactly what he's putting in and, and work up some kind of training program. And, and for me, that's, that's pretty exciting. I like that. Yeah, I think it's cool. Even for someone, now, that's the other thing, too. For someone like me who has a lot of hours, I still go to somebody else for some transition training. Like, I, I've only, well, actually, I thought I only flew once in a G-1000 aircraft, but I think Bill English reminded me that we actually went in a G-1000 the, the other day. And, uh, Bill, I'm assuming that's something that you also do, is you help people transition to, say, their new fancy panel or something they've never seen before. Yeah, I've worked on a number of different panels. Um, yeah, you, you, so I'm very at home with the G1000. I'm flying with folks who have the, the 650s and the other touchscreen navs and uh, Aspen. Um, so yeah, as an in, that's one of the things as an independent, you know, you you will do that. You'll hop from uh, from plane to plane, and there's going to be all different kind of panels, not uh, not standardized. So um, I suppose that's going to kind of come into our niche discussion here in a minute. But yeah, definitely uh, there there are some uh, folks who you know want to work on that if they've got a. Uh, a G1000, surprisingly, I think a lot of people look at that as, you know, that's something, well, that requires a lot of specialized training, but it's so nicely integrated. The uh, the more difficult ones are those hodgepodge panels, some that are, you know, maybe they still got some old steam, but then they've stuffed some Aspens in there, maybe a Garmin 430, but there's some other steam gauges around, and uh, uh, people do have a lot of difficulty with that and need some uh, need some coaching, so that's a great thing to to be helping with. Yeah, so that G1000, the, all the different panels and, and helping people with that, that refresher type of training and also uh, an advanced training for them, that's, that's for sure. Right. An, another thing, too, that, and this is something that I get to get involved with is some type rating, and, and that's a lot of fun, too. If you have a specific knowledge on a certain airplane, um, you know, maybe you fly a corporate uh, plane for your job or you're an airline pilot and you want to help somebody pass their test on their specific airplane then or their oral exam, you can do that type of training too. I mean, it's all flight instructing. It's all, all sorts of fun uh, getting into all the different types of systems and things like that. So that's something I, I actually get involved with, uh, obviously with my business, with my career coaching, is getting people ready for their type ratings and getting people ready for those uh, specific interviews, which is the same thing as getting ready for an oral exam, your instrument, your commercial, uh, you know, your multi, and that type of thing. As far as what you touched on, Bill, and we touched on the G1000. There's people that have built careers around that specific thing. And there are some advantages to having that, that niche and creating a specific market there. And we know some people on the Internet that are very involved in those type of aircraft. I keep going back to Tom as an example of somebody who has created a niche in the Cirrus. And that's something that I think is incredibly important. But... Russ, before we get to that, what what is what is some of the things in, about you know niching down that you think is really important as a flight instructor? Well, I think that you know we all generally start out in flight instruction at a flight school, teaching you know private and instrument and some commercial students and that kind of thing. Uh, but when you look at 
advancing in your career as a flight instructor. And that's really what we're talking about in this whole uh, two-part episode here, right? It's, it, we're not really talking about just building your hours and, and then going on to the airlines. We're talking about building a career as a flight instructor. Well, usually that involves, you know, working your way up into, you know, higher income levels, I guess, than, than you might get at a flight school. And often a good way to do that is by creating a niche. I mean, we have, you know, you have the, the Cirrus guys, you have the, you know, aerobatics instructors, the guys who, you know, do very specialized, uh, transition training into, you know, turboprops and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, this is, this is the, I don't know, maybe one of the harder parts of becoming a flight instructor is try to, trying to determine that market and where you can, to move yourself and where, how you can position yourself to, you know, create you know, your business and keep expanding your business. And I know for me, for the longest time, I was pretty much a generalist. I mean, I would do, you know, whatever came along, you know, private, you know, if someone showed up or instrument training or if they needed some flight reviews and that kind of stuff. And, and I didn't really have a niche exactly. Um, but over the years, about starting about three years ago, I would have people come up to me occasionally and say, Hey Russ, can you do multi-engine training? And I'm like, well, you know, yeah. If you have a if you have a twin-engine airplane, yeah, I can do it. I'm an MEI, but I don't have, I don't have an airplane. So, uh, but this it wasn't just one person. It was I don't know, maybe five people over over a couple of years were asking me this question. And so all of a sudden, last year, I said, you know what? <laughs> maybe I need to be beat over the head a few more times on this. But uh, I think there might be a market here because they, I keep getting asked about it. So. So I was able to work out a deal with a, a flight school in a different city to kind of do a long-term run on one of their airplanes. And now my niche is multi-engine training. And through that, I, I have been, I had no idea there was going to be such a market. I mean, I figured I'd do these, you know, these five people and get them done and maybe be done. But, you know, I've had this thing for six or seven months now and I've, and I have a backlog of, of clients to, uh, to get everything from adding on commercial rating, you know, commercial multi-engine to getting their ATP to multi-engine instructor ratings and this kind of stuff. So it has been a very, um, uh, surprising <laughs> and, and very, um, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, I guess, but it's been a great niche for me in this area. But if I was somewhere else that might not have worked out, there might've been plenty of other training. So that's really where you need to, you know, try to figure out what is required in, in your local area and what needs in the pilot community just aren't being filled. And that was it for me. So, uh, I, I was able, like I said, right place, right time to, uh, to jump into that niche. And you looked at that niche, you jumped in it and, and you did a great job at it. The thing is though, sometimes niches, uh, can go away or not turn out to be what you think they are. I know with, with me personally, I really was niched down into NDBs, ADFs, and understanding how to do approaches. And and uh, and first of all, some people don't even know what I'm talking about, but those have gone away. <laughs> and and it's really not a great niche to be in. And realizing that, I had to switch and uh, I got into the KLN 89B. I was like, oh, this is exciting. But Sometimes when we niche down, it can hurt our business, especially if we look at something very, very specific. And, you know, for me specifically in my business, my niche was I got people ready for the legacy airlines for their, for actually getting ready for, you know, their interviews. And that went to zero overnight uh, because of, you know, what's been happening here with the pandemic. So sometimes a niche can be great 
But when it's not good, it's not good. Uh, and that actually can go away for some time. And that's when you got to change direction and go on to something else. Bill, has you, have you ever had a niche that kind of didn't turn out the way you thought it would? Uh no, it's, no, I was just joking. I was, I was mentioning that we talked about niches, but I said my, uh, you know, my expertise on Loran-equipped beach starships was not uh, working out as lucrative as I hoped. Which that, I'm just kidding about that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there, there can be. I mean, you, you don't want to paint yourself into a corner with uh, too unique a thing. You know, if you have a um, client, I mean, I don't want to be specific. Uh, you know, I have private clients and everything. But I'm I'm working with somebody now, great great guy, great airplane and everything that I work with a lot. Um, but it's a very unique airplane. Uh, there's, there's, uh, I think, something like 20 of them. It's particular modification and everything. So I, I've got a great niche, but I, there's not really anywhere else I'm going to go with it because there's very few of those airplanes. So you do have to be a little bit careful with that, I suppose. Um, a, uh, you know, the avionics change a lot, you know, so there's probably a good balance. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you all about, uh, about that. You know, where do you draw that line between really being a guru of one thing but hopefully, you know, given the way avionics and computers change, it might not be that long before it's just, you know, washed away by, uh, you know, by some new technology. You know, Bill, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. And that's kind of what my point was going to be as far as when niching down is negative. I personally feel, and I'd like to hear what everybody else says about this, I think we should read current periodicals and and know what's happening in the industry to see where the market is going. Because like with the ADFs, I kind of knew that was going away. So I knew it was time that someday these new things called GPSs were coming out, that that was the direction to go in. So I think that's that's really important is to find is to watch what's going on out there. Um, I'm curious, does, does anybody else do that too? I mean, I was, uh, if anybody else wants to weigh in, do you actually see – the, what you're working in or the potential for something to work in. And do you see that because of the fact you hear it on the radio, you see it at the air show, you read it in the magazine, and then you say to yourself, hey, that's something I want to do. Just curious if, if anybody else does it. I know that I, I kind of wanted to also lead into this with, with Tom that some people's niches go directly to a specific airplane like a Cirrus. So in that case, you know, if – and nobody else has something to comment on that. What, you know, do you ever get nervous, Tom, about that uh, as far as niching down into just the Cirrus? Um, yeah, I think I did at one point because, you know, they're you know, they're not always readily available. It's a certain clientele that flies a Cirrus and, and you know, they generally, the, the, the company itself is, you know, got a great plan going on with their recurrency training and, and things like that. So, you know, they've made it so that CSIPs will be in need as long as that Cirrus aircraft are flying. So, yeah, but, um, you know, the whole idea of niching and, and you know, you got to be willing to re-niche. And that's that's the term that, that came up for me was just re-niching because it, while I was riding this wave of, you know, flying a lot of Cirrus for a while, things in my situation changed and, you know, it's not as prevalent as it was. So you got to reinvent and rethink and redo all the time. And it's, you know, it's part of being a, you know, a contractor, your own business owner. You know, I mean, if you want to um, have your own hours and do what it is that you want to do, then you've got to be the one that figures out what it is that you want to do, you know? So it's, it's constantly learning and, you know, trying to reinvent and, and see what a need is, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of it right now and, and have been for a little while. And, you know, it's a, 
it's an ever evolving process. So yeah, you know, um, I did, you know, cause I did, I had the opportunity to, um, you know, to get in the series and, and be, um, very focused on it, you know, for, for quite a while. And it was, uh, it was a great experience, you know, um, there's a piece of me that wishes I could still do it as much as I was, but there's another piece of me that likes where I'm moving now. So, um, it, it's really all about an individual preference, but yet staying current with everything and being able to, like I said, re-niche yourself. Yeah, I agree with, with everything that Tom said there. You got to be able to be flexible. I mean, and, and one story I kind of have about my life is that recently I have become a bit of a, uh, uh, my niche is also, you know, it's been multi-engine training, but also specifically with clients with twin Cessnas. So that the, especially the pressurized models of three forties and such. Um, well, this, this is one of the things that kind of is fluctuates. It, it's very cyclical. Uh, you know, what was it? Maybe 10 years ago, you know, gas prices were a whole lot higher nobody was, you know, buying these, you know, uh, three forties and four twenty ones and such. And then, uh, and then the market went way down. They were very inexpensive. Well, now apparently we have people buying them again. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, uh, the variability here is just, you know, if, it, if you have your niche, don't be afraid to, to go outside it. Uh, you know, I've, I've been able to, to keep up, you know, that kind of work and as well as, you know, some other things just by like Kam was saying, you know, being flexible and, and not being afraid to, uh, to try new things a little bit of the, situation Tom was talking about with the Cirruses, I think is sometimes you have a, uh, you know, a little bit of a chicken and the egg, right? You know, nobody's going to to hire you unless you're a, a CSIP or a, you know, a Bonanza approved instructor or, you know, one of the other, uh, type clubs. Uh, nobody's going to hire you to teach them if you're, unless you're one of those, but take some money to become one of those, but you're not going to get any clients until you are, <laughs> you know, so you really don't know what your market is. So that, that's kind of where we're going talking about before was that you have to, you know, find, find that market, uh, make sure you understand the, the market conditions. I mean, if it's local or if you're willing to, to travel and do that kind of training, then, then that definitely helps out, but do a good market study before you really commit yourself, uh, towards, towards, um, you know, a lot of costs and, and training and, and travel and such. But on the other hand, sometimes you just need to, to jump in and, and see how things go, but that that's the risk in any sort of business. That's not specific to flight instruction. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, you can do all the marketing and the studies you want, but luck helps a little bit. But but go for it because you're not going to do much if you just sit there and do nothing. So great, great point, uh, Russ. Uh, really appreciate that. So marketing, yeah, get out there, read everything, get involved in the industry, listen to podcasts, read magazines, go to the air shows, and discover a market that you're interested in because a lot of times you do better if you're interested in that market. You know, another thing that uh, we talked about is, uh, and we kind of alluded to, is recurrency in, in the beginning of this and, and the different type of things that you can get involved with in flight training. I think uh, some people forget about this as far as getting involved in uh, recurrency as far as for flight other flight instructors. You're a flight instructor helping other flight instructors. Russ, have have you ever uh, been involved in like uh, a FERC or doing these? I know they're both in person and online. Have you ever done those and been as an actual teacher? No, I have not. I, I've I've done all mine online. Or uh, when we, you know, if I have enough students pass check rides, then I won't have to do them. Like this next time, I should not have to do a FERC in person or online. I'll have the the activity to pass, but but I do think it'll be it'll be pretty interesting to 
to run a FERC. I think that's where you're leading, right, Carl? Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I think is, and you don't necessarily have to run it, maybe the first time, get involved in one through somebody else. I know that I've been involved in FERCs and uh, had uh, a person that ran the 141 school and said, hey, listen, you're going to do this lesson. And I think that's that's something that we sometimes don't think about because there's – and why is that? Because you, you're involved in aviation and you get a lot of check rides done and we assume everybody's full-time as a flight instructor. That's not true. Uh, there's a lot of people out there, many people out there, that this is – they haven't instructed in 20, 30 years, but they need to go to these flight instructor refresher clinics, both either an in-person one or online. And you can, you can become involved as a lecturer – both in those in-person, those Zoom meetings, or in a pre-recorded one, you can actually get your own approved and actually teach during that uh, that specific first. So that flight instructor refresher clinic, you can actually get very involved in helping people uh, that you know don't intend right now to be an instructor, but want to hang on to it maybe another ten years till they're ready for retirement, and then they're going to go into retirement and become a flight instructor. Maybe they're, they've been a teacher, and now they want to actually, and they got their CFI a long time ago. Now they want to go into a full-time, but you have to, they have to use these FERCs. There's a huge market out there for that. Uh, and even other, you know, recurrency, uh, multi-engine, those type of things, uh, you can go online. You can get people ready to go out there and get current in a twin because really for a lot of this recurrency, it's not just FERCs, it's many other things. Things like uh, specific aircraft where the insurance company requires you to go, uh, like in the, the 340. Maybe they make you go to a sim training every so often. Uh, so that's the type of thing that you can get involved with. And there's many organizations out there you can get involved with through the recurrent training, which, you know, it's not initial. And the cool thing about it is people a lot of times come to you, uh, especially, you know, when you're first starting out in the business, maybe go work for somebody and then become the expert. And then you can start doing it on your own, that type of thing. But uh, anyway, so is there any, I'm trying to think other than other recurrent uh, training, obviously the IFR training, that type of thing, uh, having a simulator that you have available, have your own simulator. There's lots of different things that you can do in currency. And it, I'm not just talking uh, the legal currency. I'm talking being current and trying to train somebody so that they actually can go fly in the system. So there's a, the legal recurrency. You got to do the class. Then there's the other currency where you, you should do the class to make yourself proficient and that type of thing. Well, anyway, guys, this has been an awesome discussion. I know we're up on the hour mark here, and we have to get to our picks of the week. I know we're going to get a lot of other questions about this. There's going to be some more discussion as far as uh, I know we did part two. I, I'm not sure if we're going to do a part three. We may actually dive into uh, the, the type of students in another episode. This is something we could uh, unpack, and, and being a flight instructor, especially now, is is a little bit difficult for those that are just getting started. I know that a lot of people have written into us, uh, and you can you know obviously contact us by going to stuckmikeafcast.com, leave a comment down there after the show or in the contact section. Uh, but it, you just hang in there. 
that's the biggest thing is is keep trying to do something every single day so that you can actually get better as an instructor even if you don't have a student right now it's it's going to it's going to change the industry's going to change things are going to go in, in a different direction in the future uh, so that's what you have to prepare yourself for maybe niching down you can do that now maybe become an expert in something that uh, <laughs> that maybe you never thought of before but it's something that you're interested in the next episode is episode 267, and that's where we talked about if you should obtain a complex endorsement in 2021. Same rules apply here in 2022. So go check that out. You'd be surprised at some of the things that we actually discussed and what we felt were some great ideas as, to, as far as why you should get your complex endorsement. Well, let's go dive right into this and, uh, and talk a little bit about the endorsement and the complex aircraft. You know, that's something that I've been hearing a lot in some emails and some chatter on some of the boards that I get on is, uh, especially some of the, you know, folks that are having their their children uh, going out and they're paying for their, their training. They're saying, oh, they don't need a complex endorsement. And they say, was well, it really uh, still relevant? And uh, and I, I think it is relevant. I think the complex endorsement is relevant for many reasons. Uh, but the one reason that I tell people I think it's relevant, I feel it just helps make you a better pilot. Uh, and that's, that's my opinion. It's uh, something that will actually help you grow as a pilot. And if you do want to move up to other aircraft, you're going to need to get a complex endorsement. Even if you're deciding not to go into a complex aircraft, it's great to just have there. And there's many, many reasons to do that. I'd also like to hear from uh, from you guys. Uh, you know, And Bill, I know we, in, we went out flying the other day. We'll talk a little bit about that in a, uh, here in a second in a Diamond aircraft. But, you know, do you think uh, a complex endorsement is still relevant? Um. Well, of course, uh, <laughs> we can make this real short. Yes, of course we do. Um, I I, uh, I got a lot of my ratings way back when, um, as I think you know, a lot of people are thinking it's not relevant anymore. You don't necessarily need the complex endorsement to get your commercial rating anymore. Um, you know, I did uh, my ratings back when you did. You had to do that. You had to have that. Well, let's. Uh, you know, we haven't really said this yet, Carl. What is a complex endorsement and a complex airplane. And we're talking about an airplane with a controllable prop, a constant speed prop, retractable gear and flaps. Uh, and that, you know, typically your Piper Arrow, Cessna Cardinal, airplanes like that um, count as the, the, those those entry-level complex that people get their um, endorsements in. And you had to have that back when I got my commercial rating, um, you know, in the in the dark old days. And you're absolutely right. It makes you think more about the, the systems of the airplane, staying ahead of the airplane, um, uh, whether you uh, actually go on to get your commercial rating or not. Definitely helps with that. Yeah, I agree with that, Bill. And, and Tom, just real quickly, what, what are your feelings as far as a complex endorsement? Do you still uh, give people their complex endorsement when you're training them? Maybe they're thinking about becoming instructors? Sure. And, you know, I mean, it, it's it's definitely still relevant. I agree with what you said about it. I think it makes you a better pilot. Um, you know, um, like Bill said, it's it's not a requirement for the um, commercial certificate anymore, but um, it is still um, something that will, will help you as a pilot. It, it just, it, it's it's that next level of learning systems and just being aware. And um, you want to talk about, you know, being always on your checklists and things like that, you know, 
remembering to put the gear down is a, is, is a very important part of a flow that, um, you know, is something everybody should learn when they're flying, especially as you start getting up into the higher ratings. Yeah, and Tom and Bill, I think another thing that, that's really important to getting your complex endorsement, and I think this is something that people don't think about much, is that, you know, we talk about being old and, and the fact that we had to get our complex to become commercial pilots back then. Remember this, a lot of flying clubs uh, and a lot of different places where you rent from have older airplanes, and they have complex aircraft. You know, just about every club that I've joined uh, has had a complex aircraft, and and I've in partnerships. So if you're wanting to go out and, and actually rent one of those, it's a good idea to start looking towards getting your complex endorsement, which is something we're going to talk about, so that you can actually fly a complex aircraft, because someday you may wind up going into a partnership with some of those airplanes. And, you know, Bill, I'm glad you brought up the definition for a complex aircraft, because a lot of people, they don't understand what that complex aircraft is. And uh, and just, we're going to give a couple examples, but going back, Bill and I flew the other day, and, uh, and some people will say um, that the Diamond DA-40, they thought was a complex aircraft, but it really isn't, and the reason being is that it doesn't have the retractable landing gear, but it does have a constant speed propeller uh, and uh, has flaps. You know, it's it's something that we sometimes think is complex, but it's not. Uh, so, do you need a complex endorsement for that? No, you really don't. Um, the other one that I think a lot of people feel that's a complex in, uh, aircraft is the 182, and we're just talking about complex um, and not not really high performance. Another, a whole another endorsement there. Sometimes this can be tied in together, but. The 182, many of them don't have retractable landing gear. But I will tell you this. I did join a flying club, had a 182RG retractable gear, and you needed a complex endorsement for that. So those are the things that I find is really good in getting your complex endorsement for a very good instructor prior to, and someone who has a lot of experience teaching in complex aircraft, prior to actually going out and possibly renting an aircraft. Because I tell you, this is what happens. You go to a club, and they have you know the 172, they have the Cherokee, they have this 182RG, and you're like, oh, that looks so cool. And, and you're like, you really want to go fly the thing. But sometimes, uh, you know, you can't find the proper instructor pay, maybe in the club. Sometimes it's best to go ahead and go out and get that, that complex endorsement ahead of time. There are some clubs, though, I will say, you know, that, that are set up to, to do some great training in those complex uh, aircraft. But one of the most important reasons to get this complex endorsement and get proper training, and that's really what I want to talk about, the complex endorsement being relevant in 2021, is finding, finding proper training. Because, again, I think we're, we're seeing more people go towards less or aircraft that are, excuse me, not complex. Because now for the commercial certificate, you just have to use a technically advanced aircraft. So you're finding a few less people, that, uh, as far as instructors are concerned, that are teaching in these complex aircraft. And one of the most important things I feel is, and I used to always tell people this, when you're flying a complex aircraft, you really don't want to make the six o'clock news. And what does that mean? You don't want to be in the news because you're the person that forgot to put the gear down. And that, in my mind, is one of the biggest challenges in the complex aircraft is the gear. Uh, the prop, you know, the flaps, yeah, but truly the gear, because that is one of the things that, that we tend to have a lot of challenges with. And even professional crews uh, forget to put the gear down. And, you know, I'll relate to one that actually happened to, to me on a jet is, uh, you know, 
got ta- tass saturated, deciding to change runways uh, just at like 1,500 feet. And, you know, the, I was the non-flying pilot, and we changed runways, and the pilot was actually flying pilot, focused on the runway, forgot to put the gear down. Uh, and that, uh, luckily, uh, turned out to be caught because in, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about this later, because in our procedures, we make sure that at a certain altitude that we're configured for landing. And without the gear down and we're at a thousand feet, we're not configured. Uh, so what, what usually happens then? We go around, try it again. That's what happens there. But that that uh, not putting the gear down rarely happens now, especially with, with the professional crews and also with all the automation that we have these days, but it can happen. It really can. And there's some huge costs that are involved. And uh, just to relate one story with uh, the club that I was talking about where I joined that had a 1A2RG, absolutely loved the airplane. We had a, a member that came in and, uh, and forgot to put the gear down. And that actually... Uh, actually precipitated many costs that we did not realize because when you don't put the gear down a lot of folks think it's just the gear it's not just the gear Uh, a lot of times your propeller is still spinning and what happens then well then you have a prop strike and then you have to tear down the engine and do an inspection and sometimes you have to do a rebuild depending on what happens so in the case where we with that 1A2RG when we had one of our members not put the gear down wound up spending about $65,000 in that repair now. With that said, it wasn't just the engine, and it wasn't just the gear we repaired. That's when we decided, okay, let's fix some other things. Uh, so it can actually bring a lot more cost than just the, the actual gear uh, not heading down and not putting down. So those are kind of some of the two stories I wanted to relate as far as the complex air. And there's many more I can, but those are some of the big ones there. Uh, and, and that's really kind of what I want to focus on today with the complex aircraft. And we'll talk a little bit about the propeller. But uh, Tom, uh, I was wondering, do you have any uh, stories that you want to relate as far as some of the experiences in operating a complex aircraft? Doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an accident or incident. Maybe something that was a, a you know a close call. Yeah. Uh, um, so you know, a complex aircraft. Uh, so when when I learned to fly airplanes with landing gear, um, I had an instructor who um, basically told me that you know. Well, the way he put it was this. He said, you've either um, are one of those pilots who have or will land gear up. And he says, the trick is to stay the one who will. Um, I was taught, you know, I'm I'm really, really um, anal about putting down the gear. So I start calling it out at, at, at different phases of flight. Um, if I'm in a traffic pattern, I'm calling it, you know, in the downwind, three green, turn and base three green, you know, on final three green over the fence, three green. So I'm, I'm always looking to make sure, cause I don't want to be that guy who had, has my gear up. Um, it, coincidentally, this, this same instructor had, um, had a gear up incident after I got my complex from him and it wasn't, well, I, I guess it wasn't his fault, but he, um, had a student who, you know, he was doing the same thing. He was calling out three green, you know, gear down, gear down. Well, I guess when he was on final and said gear down, the student reached over and put the gear up. And sure enough, they, they landed with the gear up. And his explanation of it to me was, he says, it's kind of an odd feeling. He says, it's over very, very quickly. He said it made a loud scratching noise and he said everything got really quiet. And he said, we knew exactly what had happened and we got out of the plane and everybody was fine. And it's just one of those things, you know, so, um, 
I've uh, I've witnessed a couple of gears up. I, one was an emergency situation, which was a uh, um, a 182 RG that um, he couldn't get the gear down. Did everything, went through all the emergency procedures, circled the top of the airport for over an hour until he was finally out of fuel and he had to put it down on the ground. And you know, so I got to witness it from the outside, and it does. It makes a a, a pretty intense little noise as it goes down, but. Luckily, the thing came to rest safely, and you know, and they just they dragged it off the runway and went about their day. Yeah, usually it doesn't lead to something catastrophic, but it sure is embarrassing as it was for them. You know, a lot of these aircraft, we have systems that uh, help us or remind us, or even possibly put the gear down for us. And uh, in the case where you know, with the jet I was flying, the, forgetting to put the gear down, it was a big you know, and the thing started yelling at us. But there are some airplane that that'll actually uh, you know actually put the aircraft down, uh, or excuse me, the wheels down for you, and uh, and that's uh, you know those arrows. And Bill, I think you have a little bit of experience with arrows, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I mean they're they're pretty uh, popular for the uh, complex endorsement, the Piper Arrow various series. And if people don't know what we're talking about, a lot of the Piper Arrows, you know, from back in the you know seventies, eighties of vintage airplane. Um, they had a system on them that would automatically extend the gear um, in certain configurations. I, I forget what it is. You know, certain you know reduced power setting, and if you had a notch of flaps, which that was that's an, I guess a neat little safety feature. But of course, don't forget they're also used as training airplanes. So what else do you do with a training airplane? Well, you do slow flight and stalls and things like that. Well, you don't want the gear just randomly dropping on you while you're doing. Uh, those kind of maneuvers. So some of them would have a little this is little tab that would flip up and hold um, uh, and, and hold the uh, the auto extension system uh, or make it um, disabled, so that you could flip this little tab and then go about doing your slow flight and everything, and the gear wouldn't randomly drop on you. You just you'd have to do it yourself. Well, of course, naturally, um, unintended consequences. Sometimes people would forget to flip the tab back, and their auto gear extension would be um, disabled, and they'd not have that. Um, I don't I don't know of any accidents or, or incidents that were caused by that, but it sh- sure could get confusing. Um, you know, people either not using it when they were doing their maneuvers or forgetting about it, and then. Uh, suddenly realizing, oh, hey, we got to do this by ourselves. And uh, so I got to pay attention to that, pay attention to those systems in your airplane. There's, uh, um, I, you know, as time goes by, I suspect a lot of those have gone by the wayside, but there's still some of them out there to watch out for. Yeah, there sure are. And, uh, and and by the way, let's try not to make me feel bad because it seems like we're talking about some of these older aircraft and, and I'm starting to feel old as we're discussing this. But there are people that like to fly those planes and like to fly those complex aircraft. I know we've come a long way with systems. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but hey, your point though, Bill, on that, on that system, uh, I've flown a lot in Arrows. And one of the ways that that system works is based on airspeed. And if you come in really fast, uh, and uh, and you you know decide to put the aircraft on the ground, it may not auto extend, which it does in that case. Uh, well, that's a good you know, and and that's a good reminder, as Tom was saying, that when you start to move into these kind of airplanes, you you really can't be flying them anymore. So much seat of your pants. You've got to be a lot more proceduralized, checklists, flows, doing things at you know at the same time, and uh, you know and uh, proceduralized points. Um, you know, we 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 talk about the the gumps check. I suspect we're going to get to that. The uh, the reminder, um, especially for complex airplanes um, airplanes with retractable gear, 
you'll remind yourself with the acronym GUMPS, right? Gas, U for undercarriage, your landing gear, mixture, and prop. To remind yourself, get that gear down. And uh, yeah, I, I know I, I do three, three of those GUMPS checks in every pattern, minimum. So um, you, it's not like you can't get away with things that you can get away with in a more, uh, more simple airplane. Yeah, hey, that was great bringing that up, Bill, because uh, we'll talk a little bit about the gums check because part of this whole system, the complex aircraft, is also the controllable pitch propeller. And uh, and that's something that just adds to this. And and we really, one of the things that we want to make sure is people know how to use a controllable pitch propeller. There's lots of YouTube videos out there. Um, I will say one thing that getting into that, that groove and getting into that, that standardization for yourself, whatever it may be, you know, be consistent with it and, and don't vary from that. I think that's a great point, Bill, uh, because I do a gums check every single time, no matter what aircraft I'm flying, whether it's at, at work or it's uh, at play. You know, I still do that gums check to make sure that I uh, have not uh, forgotten about the gear. I was wondering, Bill, I, I know what I do is when I see the numbers, for the airport that'll be my and i'm aligned with final that's my last gum check uh when you said there's three times is there like a sequence i mean do you have a specific spot where you do those three gums checks uh not not specific generally at each leg of the traffic pattern you know if you're doing a pattern you know a downwind base um final uh, or on, on an instrument approach you'll start you know the first place you'll do it usually is final approach fix and then i'll do them at uh stable call uh so at a thousand feet or 500 feet and um and then short final you know that last minute uh, sort of idiot check on short final basically where minimums would be right right um you know, one of the things that, as far as the, the gear is concerned, a lot of people put in that specific sequence. Maybe uh, your first notch of flaps you do before you put the gear down. Your next notch of flaps also includes the gear so that you're constantly uh, making sure you're within uh, <laughs> that proper procedure. Like You're doing things in sequence. It's a lot of term we use quite often at the airlines is, uh, hey, I'm doing this out of sequence. You know, I'm going to put the gear down without having any flaps down because I'm really high and I'm fat and I want to slow down and get down, uh, so I'm going to throw the gear out. But I know that what I'm going to do, say, in my airplane is, you know, hey, you know, the third the, the third notch of flaps or whatever it is, full flaps, I want to make sure my gear down is down at that point. I never have full flaps without the gear down. Whatever system is you that you use, I want you to continue to use that system because uh, we all have different types of systems. Uh, so, Tom, what, what system do you use? Do you something, use something like that, like when you're on final making sure the gear is down, or, or is there something else that you use? Yeah, I mean, the gums check is, is pretty standard. I was taught CC gums, and actually it has the two Cs in the front and two Ss in the back, which is uh, carb heat, cowl flaps, gas, undercarriage, mixture, props, switches, seat belts. And that pretty much covered it. And um, I use CC gums in every plane that I fly. And that's why I use it is because it covers so much different stuff, you know. So even when I'm flying in a Cessna 172 or a little Piper uh, Arrow or a Piper Warrior or something like that, I still do a CC gums check. And I'll, I'll put my finger on the dashboard to put the gear down even if it's not there. I'll even move the props forward if, even if I don't have a props lever just to keep myself in that flow and that practice. So, you know, in my mind i'm still adding things into my my uh, checklist as i go through and that way i'm i'm constantly going through them and i'm looking for those things no matter what plane i'm inside of 
To add to that point, Tom, uh, and I'm glad you brought this up, is that if you're somebody that switches from one airplane to the next, it's always important to use that gums check and use that you know complex checklist uh, because of the fact you want to have some kind of standardization. And uh, and I'm assuming that's something, Tom, that you do with all your students. Indeed. You know, so, uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm only as good as what I was taught, you know, don't know what I don't know. So, but yes, that's the way that I was taught was because I, I, um, I was training to be a CFI so that I knew that I was going to be jumping from airplane to airplane. So, you know, one minute I was in a Cessna 172, then I was off in a, you know, uh, an arrow, a Piper arrow, then I'd be off in a Cirrus SR-22 and then off in a one and, and, and that's just one day worth of flying and it can get confusing with a lot of different checklists and stuff like that so yes finding something standard that I could go through that I was going to check all of the systems no matter what I had on the plane uh, made it a little easier yeah it sure does before we talk about actually training and, and go into that part of our discussion, I do want to mention the controllable pitch propeller. And that's something that I think um, the reason we've been focusing on the gear, by the way, is that's the one thing that gets most people in trouble. It's not so much the controllable pitch propeller as it is uh, the gear. But we can get ourselves in trouble uh, without uh, properly using that controllable pitch propeller. And the reason being is all the systems are different. Uh, and, and the pitch can be different and how it's set can be different. It's they're not all the same and that's something that you have to really understand about your system and how it actually works and and whether it uses you know the how the governor works and how you know the oil actually controls that governor and understanding how to check the system before you go out and fly the aircraft to make sure that the propeller governor is working and it and say some airplanes even have reverse amazingly enough in some of these uh, uh, smaller general aviation aircraft which uh, I thought was kind of interesting but uh really i mean you really really and the point i'm trying to make is you really have to know that system as far as the controllable pitch propeller so let's talk a little bit about that and then we'll talk about the, the the training environment and what we suggest when you're trying to get your your uh complex endorsement the controllable pitch propeller lots of stuff out there on youtube i love a lot of it uh, uh i actually have a video about it made a long time ago for one of my students and uh, it's kind of uh my, it was a little bit boring because i was just making it for one student didn't realize a few hundred thousand people will be watching it uh, but I, I highly recommend you going out there and actually checking those out there's some books out there we'll talk a little bit about that uh, but Tom to start with you um, what do you what do you usually recommend uh, people do when they're looking at uh, you know using that controllable pitch propeller is there any kind of uh, general advice you tell people say before you land well um, you know there's that before you land, I would hope that they already had that information. You know, um, what what I teach is is you know we're gonna we're gonna poke our nose into that POH for that particular aircraft, and we're gonna figure out exactly how the system works. We're gonna go over it, and we're gonna talk about why we have different settings at different phases of flight. You know, so um, you know we just talked about CC gums. When one of the things in there is props. Well, when you're coming in for landing, you're gonna put that prop full forward, so that way you have the best pitch, so that you can get the most power out of that particular prop should you have to go around you know so right. you're, you're setting yourself up for, for just in case you know those are all things that we're going to discuss long before we even get in the airplane and and you know find ourselves on final by the i would hope that by the time somebody gets on final uh the first time in a complex airplane that somebody has taken the time to explain to them how that system works and why we are put, making the settings the way that we are 
instead of just getting in and going, oh, yeah, yeah, we set this thing at, uh, you know, full props to take off, and then we set it at uh, 2,500 RPM and 25 inches of manifold pressure for the climb, and then we take it down to 23, 22 inches of manifold pressure and the cruise. That's, that's not enough information. What is happening in that prop when, when you make those adjustments, and why are we doing those settings? And that information is found in the POH. And oh, hopefully we would good. go through that before we even get in the plane. Tom, I'm so glad you said that. That was uh, one of the biggest points I wanted to get to is you have to look at the POH. Like I said, every system works differently, and we could talk about generally about systems, uh, but – uh, and we and a lot of people go in discussions on how a control uh, pitch propeller works, constant speed propeller works. Well, it's different in every airplane. So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I just think you should actually know your airplane. And Bill, I know like with the airplane we went up with uh, in the DA40 um, flying around, there was something that was a little bit different than I was used to. And after we take off and, and setting the, the prop control, uh, at a different RPM than I was expecting. You know, I was thinking manifold pressure was going to be a different setting, and it wasn't. Uh, so I'm not, I was just kind of wondering, uh, have you ever run across that uh, where, you know, you have people that have experience in a, in a constant P-prop, controllable pitch propeller, and they run across the same confusion as I did? Um, yeah, that is something to know. I mean, about the diamonds have three different propellers that they can have, and some of those props have a, um, an RPM limit um, on, on takeoff. Some don't. So just as Tom said, you've got to get into the into the book and the checklist for that particular airplane. Um, to, you know, depending on which propellers installed, um, you may have to uh, be pulling the RPM back. Um, you know, once you're at a safe altitude after takeoff, others you can leave up at, a, at full forward for the you know the extent of your climb, or at least for quite a bit of your climb. So again, you, you just have to get in there and um, and know the airplane, know the details of the airplane, and don't just assume. Well, I yeah, I flew a I flew a diamond at a different club, so this one's just the same. Uh, it might not be. Might have the different prop on it. So get in there and get in the get your nose in the books. Yeah. And, and Bill and Tom, great points because uh, we all need to realize we have to learn the airplane that we're flying, especially with a constant speed prop and, and any system, really, because there's always something that's different. Let's switch a little bit to, you know, why we already talked about why and talked a little bit about the systems. Let's talk a little bit about training and, uh, and how we should train to learn the constant speed propeller. Now, one of the things that's changed over the years is the simulators that we have, the flight training devices that are absolutely excellent and uh, are great training devices for this and also for different things like different systems you can actually go on there and do a lot of training in a short amount of time because you can constantly go over things like um, you can you know and say you take an arrow out and you fly in the pattern uh, you can't you know go back and and show them how to actually you reduce the power how you reduce the rpm and and do that over and over in a short amount of time but in a simulator you can you can actually do it a whole bunch of times and put them back on the ground and put them back on the ground and say okay let's go through that procedure uh, one more time i personally uh, i'm a big uh, proponent of the flight training device uh, and that leads into other complex airplanes uh, especially with uh, twins and light twins all i won't even get in the airplane until usually we're about 10 hours into the simulator and with a complex aircraft too and so the flight training device is one. Also sitting in the cockpit and, and looking at the controls is, is another one. So I'd like to hear from, from both, uh, say, Tom, what, when you start doing your training in a complex aircraft, uh, and we talk a little bit about the book work, looking at the POH, what's next? What do, you, do you jump into the plane and demonstrate it, or do you start out with a simulator? 
Um, I've worked at flight schools where I've had a simulator um, available to me, and, and we start out there. That's a, Like you said, it's a great place to start because there's a lot of things we can do in the sim that we necessarily wouldn't be able to do in the airplane. Um, and, and like you said, resetting things back up again and, and just getting through that flow of um, how the airplane is going to react in, in different phases of flight. Um, you know, if that's available, fine. If not, then yes, we can go out and fly the plane. Generally, when I'm doing a complex add-on, you know, doing a, a complex endorsement for somebody, it's somebody who's already usually got a, you know, they're already rated. You know, I, I don't think I've done anybody who is a, a sub-private, like just a student pilot. Um, I have. I did take a student pilot up once in an arrow and was showing them some of the stuff, but it was a it was a different flight than actually working on a, a complex endorsement. So, um, you know, because they already have the knowledge of, of how to fly an airplane, it's it's adding these extra things on that, that you're going to do in a complex that you necessarily wouldn't do in just a regular fixed propeller airplane. You know, so a little easier to describe. And, and I've done it from scratch in an airplane, but again, it started out with the with the bookwork first. Yeah, most of the time when, when you know when I was teaching many years ago, we started in the airplanes. We really didn't have a, a simulator to do that, and uh, you know I spent a lot of time on the board and going over things and uh, writing things on a chalkboard and stuff like that. And I, I tell you that it is a great way is to, to, to visualize. I think that's another part is actually visualizing, uh, but having it demonstrated. Uh, that's that's awesome. I mean, that's something that I think uh, we should do with most maneuvers anyway. Say, this is how it works, and uh, now I want you to try to do that. Uh, Bill, did you have anything to add to that as far as you know how you get people started in the sure. complex? Uh, no, not really anything uh, new there. But yeah, that's it. That is a great use of a simulator. You can discuss it in the quiet of the simulator and just get the the procedures down. That's what their uh, sims are really great for. Whether they're full motion or just a desktop, just get that muscle memory going and. Uh, uh, save save the person some time and money. So another uh, tip that I have for a complex aircraft, and this is something that I I like to use, is uh, uh, you know another checklist that I always throw in there. And the reason being is when you're doing training, often you forget sometimes to take up the gear and the flaps and that type of thing. Many years ago, I developed this little checklist I called the Gift of Flight: Gear Indicated Airspeed, Flaps, Transponder, and Throttles. Those are the things that I always forget after takeoff, or do tend to forget. I shouldn't say always tend to forget. So it's just simple, and I put it down there. Gift: It's gear indicated airspeed. We forget what speed we're flying at, uh, especially when you get into something that's faster. You may not be able to go over 200 knots. I was flying out of an aircraft, an airport that was underneath Class Bravo, flying in a King Air, and you know there's a 1,200 foot shelf. You need to slow down uh the flaps you want to make sure your flaps are up in your throttles you want to set your throttles properly and the transponder those are things that we forget i know there's a lot of automation now that that (laughs) keeps us out of the woods there but uh and even uh tom and i we did that flight down uh the runway there at at nasa and uh we decided to kind of go around and i'm saying hey i feel like something's wrong i said well let me go through my gift you know gear indicate oh when i did gear all of a sudden things changed and the flaps okay i brought the flaps up so that's uh that's something that I, I just use if you're in that environment of constantly training uh, is, you know, there's the after takeoff checklist, but there's prior to that, as you're doing that flow, the gift of flight. And again, you want to uh, grab those checklists. Uh, Tom, any other thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we were talking just a little bit about, you know, the training aspect of it and, and getting your students inside there. And, and from an instructor's standpoint, you know, the um, with, with somebody um, using a um, adjustable prop, you know, the when you get them into the plane and you finally get them to the point where 
they can adjust that prop without you even knowing that they adjusted it. That's when you can start feeling a little bit of finesse that they're starting to get better at understanding what the system is doing instead of just, you know, yanking it back in here, you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden they, 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 they make a power setting and, and, and make a prop change. And it's so smooth and so nice and easy that, you know, the passengers in the back seat wouldn't even have known they'd done it. And that's when you know that you've done your job, that they're, they're thinking their way through this and, and really being able to make adjustments that, uh, that count. Well, Tom, I'm glad you brought that up. Is is the next part of this in that whole training scenario is finesse, and and that's what we want to get to. And that could take a while uh, to get to that point where even uh, you know as you're landing, you're decelerating. When do you bring the prop forward? You try to bring the prop forward to a higher RPM so that they don't even notice it's changing. So those are kind of cool. Those those are the type of the points that we want to get to in our training, and and get out there with an the instructor. Say, hey, you know, I want to I want to make it feel better for my passengers. How can I do that? And I'm glad you brought about up uh, the point about uh, flight instructors and advice for flight instructors. Um, I think one of the pieces of advice I can I can give instructors is if you can try to grab a, a simulator, but or but also do a lot of work before you even get into the airplane. Make sure they understand how a constant speed prop works. Make sure they understand uh, how the gear works. And the other really big thing, and we haven't really stressed this much, but I want to stress it now. And you as the instructor, now that we shift into instructor mode, is you know, make sure that they understand the systems. Whatever airplane you're using, uh, make sure they understand the systems in that aircraft. And, uh, for example, the gear. If the gear doesn't come down when you put the gear lever down, make sure you, you know, they understand what to do next. They follow the checklist, but also make sure they have a, a really good systems knowledge so they know what they need to do to get that gear down in case that checklist doesn't work, that emergency checklist doesn't work. They may have a good enough knowledge of the systems, uh, adequate knowledge where they can actually put that gear down even outside those checklists. Usually checklists will work, but sometimes they don't. Uh, so shifting into that as far as the endorsements concern, etc. And by the way, uh, if you are looking to do an endorsement for a student uh, uh, that you're working with or one of your clients, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes as far as the endorsement there. Uh, it's a uh, simple endorsement, but uh, but very, very important because I feel as an instructor that if if you have a student that does a, a gear up, and I know it happens, uh, I sometimes own that. It's like, hey, what did I do wrong to have my student make that mistake, uh, especially with the gear? And, and I really don't want to have that happen. I don't want my student to be on the 6 o'clock news, uh, and, and that's quite important. Uh, and just as a side note, I, I actually had a student I said this to. I said, I never want to see you on the 6 o'clock news. And, and he looks at me and says, he says, you know, that's actually what I do for a living, right? <laughs> he says, I produce the 6 o'clock news. I was like, okay, forget about that. I just don't want you in anybody else's news. <laughs> and, and so one of the things that we, we want to do is pass along to you, if you're a flight instructor listening, is is some things as far as advice uh, moving forward. So um, anything to add there, say, Bill, as far as advice to flight instructors when they're preparing their students for, for that process of learning the complex aircraft? Um. No, I, I think Tom, uh, Tom, and you hit it um, pretty well there. And uh, you know, we didn't really give too much until you just mentioned there. But uh, we talked a lot about landing gear up, but um, you know, really understanding the system and what you have to do if you have to troubleshoot it, and if you do have to get it down, it's not just as simple as you know, press the backup button. Um, so make sure that they're uh, they're really understanding all of that. They can find it all. They can reach it all. Some airplanes, it's not. Uh, 
it's not really easy to get at. So, you know, to spend some time with the student and, um, you know, sitting in the airplane and, okay, if you do have to, you know, if you have an emergency, here's how you're going to do. And you might have to do a little bit of, uh, you know, gymnastics in the airplane to get it done, depending on, on what plane you're talking about. I mean, I know like the Mooney, for example, is just real tricky. I, I got to kind of bend my arm the wrong way to get at it if I wanted to. <laughs> at the i don't think my elbow goes that direction certainly doesn't at my age <laughs> uh, yeah coming and emergency procedures incredibly important um and knowing those systems uh and to get the gear down uh in case we have an issue you know thinking outside the box why is this happening what can we do i mean i i used to fly an airplane that uh heck the gear motor would would pop on me all the time the circuit breaker would pop as a hydraulic system and you know how do we get that down is it a free fall system do I have the ability to pump it down? How do I do it? You know, and and if it's a, a manual system, can you have problems with a gear in a manual system? You sure can. Uh, that, by the way, I hear people say that sometimes. Well, it's a manual system. What could go wrong? Well, things can go wrong in a manual system. You can actually have some kind of interference uh, with the actual physical system and figuring out how to get that gear down with having you know something in the way. In other words, uh, putting that that gear down. So, uh, Tom, uh, I was wondering, as far as an instructor is concerned, any any other advice you'd have for those instructors out there listening is uh you know preparing somebody for their their complex endorsement besides the systems etc well i think you guys got it pretty good i know i had to chuckle just a little bit when you said i thought that was like on the private pilot written somewhere about never asking what could go wrong you know the, the, <laughs> it was, uh, is, know, is it on the written <laughs> yeah i i think it is i don't think you're ever supposed to ask that question what could possibly go wrong but uh um, you know, as, as, as far as systems, you know, I mean, it's, it is, it's that important to, to, to figure it all out. You know, I mean, some guys that, you know, I, I've flown with know their airplanes so well, and I start asking about their gear and the backup systems and stuff and they go, Oh yeah. Like, like Bill just said, yeah, you got to crick your elbow back around the wrong way, but you turn the thing exactly 102 times and it puts the, puts the gear down, you know? And so that's the kind of intimacy that you need to have with the systems of what you're flying in a complex airplane. You really need to know what's going on with it. What is the system doing when it's functioning normally? What is the system doing when it functions abnormally? And what do you do in the case of an emergency? And and those are all things that are paramount to know before you even go anywhere off on your own with the thing. Great advice, Tom. I appreciate that. We're going to wrap right there. I think uh, one of the most important things that we need to know is that uh, we, we need to answer this question. First of all, uh, we need to know our systems, but should you obtain a complex endorsement in 2021? I and Tom and Bill all feel you should for many reasons that we put out here. It makes you a better pilot. It's fun. That's a big one, too. I mean, you got to have fun, and, and you'll learn something, and it'll make you a much <laughs> more well-rounded pilot, and you may someday wind up joining a club because there's a lot of airplanes just as old as us on this podcast that are out there in those clubs and and you may wind up flying some of those and in the last episode it was 284 how to choose a real alternate how to choose a real alternate and that one actually was really interesting in that we discussed not just the rules, but, but going beyond the rules and how to actually choose an alternate that would be best for you and also the safest option, taking from the experience of a lot of the folks that are flying both for the airlines as a flight instructor, GA, and corporate. Really good episode. Great discussion. 
you know, like I said, I've been diverting and uh, holding, and uh, you know, I have some. Actually, I'm going to try to put that screenshot. I'm trying to find it and maybe put it in the show notes of uh, some holding I did uh, close to the outer marker, uh, coming into um, uh, Orlando, I think it was, and. A lot of times what happens is on a good VFR day, we don't really have an alternate. And we may not even have to file IFR. But you know what? We we probably should have an actual alternate, like a real alternate. A lot of people are, are going to say to me, hey, Carl, this is uh, contingency planning. And uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It, it definitely is. Uh, but, uh, but that's really why I wanted to do this. I have had so many challenges, and we've had so many discussions lately at, uh, at work as to, you know, what do we do? You know, what's an alternate? And uh, what, you know, why, why do we need one? When do we need one? That, that type of thing. Uh, so one of the things I'd, I'd like to ask, especially, um, you know, I know, Tom, you, you fly a lot of corporate. And uh, in your corporate flying, you fly a jet. And you also do a lot of flying both GA and in, in the jet aircraft. Um, and you said you did a long cross country. Kind of tell me a little bit about what's been happening lately with all the thunderstorms and the hurricanes and that type of thing have you had uh, uh, some of those challenges and uh, have you been uh, hunting for alternates like I've been talking about oh absolutely and as soon as I saw the topic for tonight it was like oh this is perfect it's, it was right up you know what I've been dealing with lately you know flying in Florida this time of year um, I'm sure Russ has got the same thing out in Oklahoma we deal with you know just massive thunderstorms and they just pop up and, and you dot your way around them and and depending on what type of equipment you're flying is going to depend on how you think about where those things are and how are you going to get around them you know so um, case in point today you know I had to make a my last leg from uh, PIE to OCF up in Ocala there were storms in between there and you know we were discussing before we took off about okay what are our options along the way if we can't get into Ocala there was a line of storms that was already grown and, and pushing over that way um, I was in a Cessna 172 so um, yes it's faster than a, a 15 mile an hour thunderstorm but uh, you know going around and giving it a wide berth and all that other stuff and and I definitely don't want to fly into it you know so all my options we, we had discussed so in between I had Crystal River um, Inverness, um, Marion County, and those were all, we, we had talked about those before we even left. It's like, okay, if we need to bail and we need to get on the ground, we have places we can go and we have, we have options. And we did not file any of those locations, but had them in our back pocket if uh, that was going to, if it was going to come to that. And along that point, like you said, you had to hold. I was looking the other day at, uh, um, I haven't had any holds on my own lately, but I've seen some pretty nasty lines of thunderstorms coming through, and the major airport by me is Tampa International, and uh, a big line came across Pinellas County, and there was two spots, one over Gainesville and one over Dade's intersection out over the Gulf, where they had them stacked up. I mean, there was six or seven planes stacked up on both locations waiting for that thing to go, and then you could see... Um, one had to divert and you saw him leave that holding pattern. He went and landed over in Sarasota. I, I'm guessing it was fuel issue for him, you know, but it was funny to watch. I watched that whole entire thing on flight aware and, and you could just, cause I was curious to see where they were holding everybody and that's where it was. And, and it lasted probably, hmm, I'm gonna say the better part of 30 minutes storm had blown through and then little by little, they started letting them out of the holding patterns and back into land. And I'm wondering that one that broke out and went to Sarasota, if that was, uh, they had a contingency plan to do that or it was 
like, uh-oh, we've got a, a fuel issue and we're going to go land. So, not sure. Well, you know, Tom, it's, it's interesting you talk about lines of thunderstorms. That's kind of what we get here in Oklahoma a lot. You know, the big fronts coming through and uh, just big, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles along lines of thunderstorms and and yeah the contingency planning is real important what carl was talking about too yeah you you're flying somewhere and it, it may be a beautiful vfr day like it is out here most of the time in the uh in the summer and you just might not be getting where you're going because there's that line of storm so you, you think you think of terms of where could where else could i go you know how long can i hold i had exactly that situation uh, a few weeks back where you know i was, was looking at it and well if this doesn't clear out you know how how long can i dawdle and wait <laughs> you know how how long is it going to take the storm to get out of the way now our storms often move pretty fast, you know, out here, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for them to move, you know, at 40 knots or something like that, which is really quick for a thunderstorm movement. But, um, but so sometimes they can get out of the way before you get there. That's actually a situation I had. The storm moved out of the way before I even got there and I landed and it was, the ground was wet, but it was, you know, nice and clear and sunny by the time I got there. But the, the great thing, of course, is with, you know, onboard weather and all you, you can, kind of keep track of how the storms are moving and you can have a plan from you know 300 miles away or, or whatever so it's it's fantastic to be able to use the technology for that but uh carl you had something yeah i have a question for both of you guys and as you were saying this one thing uh was brought to my mind i'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking um you guys took off uh, ifr uh required alternates possibly uh but how how did you go about choosing your actual alternate, or did you not have one at all? Russ, I think um, maybe you could kind of point to that. And when you're choosing that actual alternate, are you choosing one more so to be legal or to be safe, or 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 both? Or do you try to kind of weigh the two? Well, yeah, <laughs> sometimes it depends, right? And I mean, we we have alternates that that you have to find. You know, we're, I don't think we're going to get really into the rules too much on this show. That that's certainly an important topic but you know the one two three rule and such you have rules when you have to file an alternate but realistically sometimes when you have to file an alternate you're pretty sure you're going to be able to get in at least based on weather right now that doesn't account for you know air, disabled aircraft on the runway or you know something closes or you know who knows what right but but at least from other you're pretty sure you're usually able to get in but when it starts getting a little bit dicey then you really put, need to put a lot more thought into it and i think where you're going with this carl is there's you can file a legal a totally legal alternate that is absolutely going to be useless <laughs> to you uh, right here where i live we have i don't know four or five airports that are probably all within a 10 or 20 mile radius of each other very similar terrain you know, oklahoma so you know, it's all the same so if the weather's bad at one place it's probably going to be about the same level of bad at the other place at the next airport over so although you may be able to file an alternate for that airport that's you know five miles away if the weather's the same there that doesn't really help um i do teach uh teach my students that there's really two things you're looking for for an effective alternate i think two let's find out if i got them right um one is that it's far enough away to make a difference for the weather or it has approaches that are significantly better okay if you've got an lpv at your home airport that goes down to 200 feet and your alternate airport has an ils that's 200 feet well it better be far enough away that the weather might be different uh, on the other hand if all you have is an lnav approach or a vor or some of your home airport that goes down to 600 feet 
and the airport five miles away has an ILS at 200 feet, well, maybe that does make sense as an alternate because you'll be able to use it to get in. Uh, so it's a couple of additional considerations you have there that, uh, that, that you need to, be, need to be thinking about. Is it a reasonable alternate? It may be a legal one, but it may not make sense for your, for your planning. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, how about you? I mean, uh, I know you've been doing a lot of flying and choosing your alternate. I mean, where, uh, what is your thought process? So, so Russ's points are, are, are definitely valid. And, and a lot of this has to do, and this came to me while he was saying about these big long lines of thunderstorms that they get in Oklahoma. We get frontal type thunderstorms here in Florida, but in the wintertime, in the summertime, we get these monsters that just grow in one place and rain themselves out in the same place. And they may not necessarily be moving very fast. You may get this thing that blossoms up and may move five, 10 miles, five, 10 knots, miles per hour, maybe, you know, it just, it does everything all in one place, you know, and it depends on the time of the year, you know, in the beginning of the summer, they grow up in the middle of the state towards the end of the summer, they're out towards the coast. And, you know, you, you get these things that don't move. So you kind of know that and, and, and can navigate around them. My point here is is that understanding the weather where you are is going to play into how you're going to pick that alternate. In other words, if I know that it's a big, long frontal system and it's moving in a certain direction, I'm not going to pick an alternate that's out in front of that thing. Granted, you know, we're, we're still subject to these are forecasts and they're going to change and they're not always the 100% accurate. But at the end of the day, I have an opportunity to try to make a better decision based on what I'm seeing with the weather. And that comes off of experience. Like today, those thunderstorms that had popped up, they were the type that just sat still. So I knew that I was going to be able to navigate around them or at least pick a place that um, was going to be useful. Yeah, Tom, I want to pipe in right there. Here in Oklahoma, usually our storms move, you know, through the area pretty, pretty reasonably, or at least they're moving. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had some that are exactly like the ones you're talking about that just sit there and they, they didn't move at all. You know, just kept raining on the same place just continually. And that's un, kind of uncommon out here. Okay, so if I had been flying that day, which I wasn't, but if I had been flying, I would have been looking, oh, that'll, that'll have moved off by the time I, I get to the airport, and well, not in that case. So although it's important to have local knowledge, absolutely, but also be uh, you know, open to changing your plan if it, if it doesn't work out quite the way you think it's going to. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things about the way that we fly um, in the collegiate setting, um, and my program is small amongst you know, some college programs, but we launch 10 to 12 flights every two hours. So every two hours, there's another 10 to 12 flights going out. So um, you've got a lot of aircraft, you know, in the traffic pattern. There's four municipally owned and operated airports in Polk County. So they, like you said, Russ, they're very close to one another, which is great for training because uh, it's really easy to go find, you know, a non-towered or a towered airport, whatever you're looking for, um, for, for training operations. But that means when those, those uh, I call them the sit-and-wait storms, when they just pop up and sit there um, until they rain themselves out, you know, it's not uncommon for our guys to be coming back and one of those little, I call them peanuts too, one of those little peanuts pops up on top of Lakeland. Well, now you're not getting back into Lakeland. Um, and, you know, so you go and you sit and wait. So you go, you find another airport. So we find in the summertime particularly um, – you're almost doing daily diversions, right? So um, one of the things, when we talk about alternates, we're not really talking about 
alternates in the IFR sense. I mean, certainly there are, like we've already talked about, legal, you know, mandated requirements for filing an alternate. We're talking about, you know, alternate decisions, um, you know, or, or alternate plans. Um, you know, you, if you're only taking off with plan A, you're already setting yourself up for failure, right? You got to have a B, C, D, and E plan before you leave. Um, and that's true whether you're talking about, you know, primary flight training, you're talking about corporate flying. Um, a couple of months ago, we took off in the King Air 350, headed for Arkansas, um, definitely within the range of the King Air, um, you know, within the alternate range of the King Air. Um, get up and realize that the jet stream has shifted further south than what it was forecast to, and I'm looking at 130 knot headwind. Um, the uh, fuel management computer tells me my fuel available on landing is zero pounds. <laughs> so I don't know when it's going to run out, but it's going to run out before I land. So so it's like, okay, well, now you got to plan for a fuel stop. Well, not really, because we'd already planned for, we already had an idea of, you know, if something goes uh, south, if it's weather, if it's an emergency in flight, if it's a fuel stop, we already knew what that was going to be before we took off. We were already mindful of it. Um, because like you were saying a second ago, Russ, and I've, I've been in this situation, in situations where I wasn't as prepared as maybe I should have been or I hadn't thought enough ahead. Everybody's solution is, well, I'll just hold and wait it out. Well, every trip, every every leg you make around that hold is that ring of where you can get to starts to shrink, right? And so the longer you sit there and wait, it's not just waiting to get into the airport you're trying to get into. It's taking away other options because you're sitting there just burning gas running around in a circle. And so you, you really got to think about not just, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to hold and, and wait, which is definitely the better option than shooting an approach into, you know, terrible weather or minimums, you know, or beyond either the limitations of you or you know, your ability to see the runway. But, you know, it's, it's a bigger question than that. So like Tom, I was excited to see real alternates because what we're really talking about is thinking ahead of the airplane. It's thinking ahead of, thinking ahead of what can go wrong and having contingency plans for those things before we ever launch. Because I th all of us have been flying long enough to know you make that go decision to leave, right? But you can always, and I tell my students this all the time, you can always make the no-go decision to continue flying. Just because you made the go call and everything looked fine doesn't mean that it's always going to be fine. So that go, no-go call is constantly being made throughout the entire course of the flight for me. Eric, I, I want to make a point too, and I, this is great that you brought that up as far as uh, diverting and and uh, you know you're sitting in there on the hold and you're burning fuel as you're sitting in the hold, and that that little cone gets smaller and smaller. Two things I, I want to talk about uh, with that in mind. Number one, how do we teach people? And that's the reason I want to have this discussion. How do we teach people how to pick an alternate? We all talked about experience. How do we get that experience? We have these conversations. We watch YouTube. We talk about you know what we've done as far as picking an alternate. And uh, and the other thing is to to Eric's point, as far as holding is concerned, when do I leave? When do I make that decision? And it's incredibly subjective uh, because of this. If you are holding, say, south of an airport, and they say, hey, it's going to be another hour before the airport opens, oh, you're like, ah, no big deal. There's an airport right over there, maybe just 20, 30 miles away from me. Well, this happened to me the other day, and I was like, oh, no problem. I've got an airport not far away. And then they said, prepare to uh, write down uh, your clearance to your alternate. Because I said, I, I don't have any gas. i got to go to my alternate. Well, then they proceeded to give me a clearance that had me sent me way back south, then to fly to the east, then to fly north. And I'm like, uh-oh, I just, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to be landing with 
not much fuel at the place I'm diverting to. So, so you have to keep in mind and think outside the box. And sometimes that comes through like that experience I just related to you is that I was comfortable until they decided to give me a clearance that made my path to my alternate double what it was. And it's not just you, right, Carl? So if you're in that situation, there are other aircraft in that hold with you trying to get into that same airport in the same situation. So, you know, in, there's always there's always the first person, right? So somebody somebody breaks off, then everybody's like, yeah, I think I'll break off too. Um, but you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait until now we're at minimums. It's time to go. Well, some people have probably already left, and then there's all the other people who are going to leave with you. And then, like you said, now you're going to get this insane clearance because there's still, you're not the only person in the sky. So you're not just making that decision for you, for your aircraft, and, you know, in the transport world, you know, for your passengers. You also got to be mindful of the fact that there's a lot of other people sharing the sky trying to do the exact same thing you're doing, too. Absolutely. And that brings up another point that I, I'm so glad you brought along is what tools do we have in, in this toolbox in, in our aviation world to figure out those contingency plans, those alternates and uh, places to go? I'll, I'll give you one, and then I'd love to hear from, from the other folks here. One of the tools that I use is uh, Flight Radar 24. If, like what Eric was saying, you, you're not the first one to be holding sometimes. Uh, you may be, actually, but you can find out by looking at, because uh, everybody has these devices now, and look at Flight Radar 24. Uh, you can look on the internet and say, hey, there's all these other people holding. Maybe I could be the first person to the alternate, get my gas, and get out of there as quick as I can. Uh, so that's just like one of the tools that I use other than my ears and eyes. But uh, I'd be curious. Uh, kind of what you guys have as far as tools. Maybe, Russ, you could uh, give us maybe a, a tool that you possibly have uh, in your toolbox. It can be anything. Uh, I used uh, Flight Radar 24. One one example of a tool is just very simple. And uh, you know, most of my clients use Four Flight. And most people know if you put two fingers down on it, it gives you a quick estimate of time and fuel it's going to take to get to wherever you're from wherever your finger is to wherever your other finger is, if that makes sense, you know? So you can kind of scroll around with a little ruler on it like that. And for, for planning out diversions, that's pretty good. I mean, it's, it's very quick. It's not entirely, you know, exact cause you know, I don't think it's accounting for the wind and all it's accounting for whatever your current ground speed is and whatever you have set for fuel flow and speed and all that kind of stuff. But, but, uh, yeah, just the two finger method on on four flight will tell you. Okay, it's to get to that airport. It's going to take you you know twenty six minutes and use whatever gallons of gas, and so that's uh, that's a very quick estimate. Can I make it there, or do I need to go somewhere closer, or I can hold here for another hour? Then I have to you know whatever. You can use that to help make those kind of decisions. So that four flight, it's interesting you brought that up. I'm not, I'm not an expert on four flight. I'm starting to get better at it. But that cone that you determine where you can go to, I, I found out the other day, and I, I know this is going to be silly. I just found this out. But there's a way you can determine, even if, say, you had an engine failure, where you can go uh, on four, four flight. Yeah, that's, that, that's, the, that's the glide ring. That's, that's a little different scenario. But that certainly does, yeah, if you have it set up right, you can have that glide ring say, I can make it to that airport if my engine fails, but not to this other one. Uh, that does depend on having it set accurately, of course. But, uh, but that, that's not going to do quite what we're talking about here with the alternate fuel planning. Uh, one airplane I fly has... Uh, 
it's very well equipped. It's got G1000 with you know all the latest upgrades to that, and and it's got that great fuel ring on it that tells you, you know, can you? Oh, I look like I make it to Mexico today, you know, uh, or you know, including your reserves. So, but but it's great. Yeah, very very easy. I wanted to circle back to that later as far as alternates because I do want to talk about engine failure alternates. It's going to be some of it's you know thinking outside of the box, uh, but uh, you know it's something at the airlines that we do all the time. We figure out how far we can go on one engine, how far we can go on no engines, uh, if we have to glide, etc. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that later. But that's again what we're not talking about right now. And Tom, I was wondering, uh, going back to that toolbox, what we have in our personal aviation toolbox. What do you use? Gosh, I'm I'm with you. You know, I've, in, instead of the Flight Radar 24, I'm more uh, more comfortable with Flight Aware. But it's the same thing. It's such a great tool. It picks up all the ADSB stuff. You can see it on the ground. You can see all these planes flying around. You know, over the entire country, if you want to. So, you know, picking a place your your destination or even places in between. It's such a great way to see how how people are diverting a, around certain weather. You know, um, it works on ForeFlight as well. I mean, my all the ADSB information comes up on ForeFlight now, even when you're sitting on the ground. If, if, you're, if I'm connected up to Wi-Fi or to uh, cellular, it, it automatically shows up there. I can look at traffic and see what's going on. You know, so that that's definitely a great tool for, um, you know, just kind of planning or at least getting an idea of what's going on in the direction that you're going. And and that's what this is all about. It's trying to provide myself with the best information I possibly can so that I can make better decisions while I'm off the ground. And, and, and I agree wholeheartedly with what Eric was talking about before about you can make that no good decision anytime. You can, you can just say, okay, we're going to take a time out and we're going to go over here and we're going to go talk about it. And, and you know, where we're safe with our feet on the ground and, and you can do that at any time. I don't know that I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm. I'm not going to repeat what they said about four flight and 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 those tools because that th- that's what I would say. I would say before we get into the airplane, though, one of the tools that you know I I tend to favor is simulation, right? So there's there's something to be said for the real world application of being in the airplane, in the environment, talking to ATC, or it's real and you're making those calls, and that's valuable experience. But you know, experience can also be a really cruel mistress in some in some cases, where you know there are there are plenty of ways to practice for these kind of situations before you find yourself in them in the airplane. And so, setting up these kinds of unfamiliar airport, poor weather delays, holds, low fuel situations. And just watch what the student does. You know, set them up in these in these scenarios. They're relatively easy to create, um, and and sort of see where their thought process is, and use that as a as a as a teaching tool, uh, where they're you know when they do make those calls or when you think it's time to intervene, where there is a pause button, and you you can turn that into a teachable moment instead of um, now we've got to you know declare an emergency because we we've waited too long and we're in the real environment. Um, it, it, it And just as an extension of that, it always blows my mind, particularly in instrument training um, with students in the sim, how no matter what I throw at them, they will not declare an emergency. They, it's, it's like part of this is, is, is real world training. Like, so now you've lost your, your primary flight indication, um, your low fuel, and you're in a non you're in an unfamiliar area. Why in the world would you not declare an emergency? You know, um, 
because in the airplane, if they if they have always operated the sim, is uh, I'm just going to keep pushing forward, and no matter what it takes, I'll I'll figure out a way to get it done. You know, that's going to translate to the airplane too. And sometimes it is appropriate. Um, it's always appropriate when it's appropriate to to say, hey, listen, I need help. I need time. I need a delaying vector. Um, um, you know, asking ATC for assistance in terms of airport selection. They can help you with some of those things. They can't make the decisions for you, but they are a resource. And learning to use that before you need it um, is the best way to make sure that, that you know how to use it when the time comes. There's two things you said there that I think are really interesting. In the simulator, sometimes we we want to stay out of the woods. In other words, I would do this or would do that. But in real life, they, they may actually uh, declare an emergency or... They may not because it's a negative transfer from the simulator because they're so used to not doing that. So, so it can go either way. Um, but going back to what you said about air traffic control, there's one thing that I, I noticed that we really didn't talk about much. And honestly, this is what we use at the airlines all the time. And that's other people. Um, and air traffic control is one of them, the pathfinders. Uh, we're honestly you know, we ask for directions, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. You know, we, it's, uh, it becomes very humbling and you say, hey, listen, has somebody else gotten through that area of storms? Uh, what are other people doing? I mean, those options may have closed up, but it gives you some kind of an idea. It's where you fall, you finally swallow your pride. And the reason people don't want to declare an emergency, because there's a lot of paperwork afterwards, this might help you not declare an emergency, at least the, the interpretation, there's too much uh, paperwork, but they really should be declaring an emergency, and they also should be help, asking for help. And they will ask you, if you ask for help, hey, listen, uh, you know, I just need some assistance getting through this weather. Uh, do you know anybody else who can help me? Any other airplanes out there? Uh, and that's that's incredibly important, I think. Uh, to, in, in being in the simulator, I think we should do that more often. It's like, hey, ask for help. Ask, ask air traffic control. Uh, so, so there's some great things about the sim, and there's some things that, that might transfer negatively in, into the, uh, into the uh, actual flying environment. That's, that is absolutely true there. But good point on the simulator, though. I think that's a great tool. I had a uh, flight you know, a month or so ago out to Salt Lake City and back from here. And, and on the way back, there was some you know, pretty significant weather over Colorado. And we were in a uh, pressurized barren. And so we're up at you know, uh, 21,000 or something like that. So it was a good clearance with the rocks down below. But there was a lot of weather around. And some, we had onboard radar. And some of it was you know, looked pretty benign. Some of it looked less benign. But, <laughs> but uh, the best thing we had was... was uh, ADSB on board. So say, Hey, look, there's an airplane that's 20 miles ahead of us. Looks like it's going the same way. So I said, Hey, uh, center, can you get a you know, report of the weather from, you know, November one, two, three, four, five, or something like that. And they called them up and I could hear directly. And right. And, and they told us what, what the ride was like and where the tops were, the bases or, you know, just that kind of information. I know that you airline guys do that all the time. You know, everybody's always asking for ride reports and that kind of stuff. Um, but it, it can work great for, for the smaller airplanes too. Absolutely. And, and having that tool of ADSB and be able to call out that one airplane, I want to know what that guy is seeing, you know, <laughs> ATC, can you get a report from him or her? Uh, that's just fantastic. Yeah, Russ, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I've recently started using ADSB at work. Uh, we, you know, we're finally getting them in the airplanes, and it's it's wonderful. If you see somebody going around a storm, say, "Hey, could you ask uh, Cessna one two three four five? Hey, what's the ride like, or how are they getting through that hole?" and 
and they come back and say, oh, it's smooth rides, and there's no problem. Lots of room between the storms. That's for sure. I mean, it's a great point. Love an ADSB. Uh, other tools. Could anybody think of any other tools? Um, I've really appreciated um, with ADSB seeing that low-level traffic that's flying around where I'm going, especially when I'm on top of a layer. It's really helpful to ask, you know, where is the rain column? <laughs> where is it actually raining? Because when I'm looking at radar, I'm seeing the, you know, if I've got actual live radar in the airplane, that's one thing. But if I'm looking at an X-Rad, I'm only seeing the most intense return in that column of air. So it's really helpful to know from folks who are down below that layer or who are descending through that layer to tell me where where is the where is the rain? Um, and so it's it's funny. I think with ADSB, we've become a lot more um, connected as pilots in the system. Um, you know, we're not talking to each other necessarily, but we are sort of we're telling uh, ATC. I'd really like to hear from from that plane. <laughs> What's well, what are they doing? Where, like you said, it used to be. You know, you were talking to center, and it was just like, "Hey, any ride reports at eight thousand or whatever?" And it was just a random. You just threw it up against a wall and hoped hoped something came back. And now you can be very specific and say, "Can you tell me what's going on with that, with that airplane over there?" Um, you know, why they they just they um, you know, or they maybe they took a lower altitude. Can you check in with them and see if the ride's better down there, or you know what they're seeing? And I think that's a that's a huge help because. With all the tools we've got, all the imaging tools in the cockpit, you know, there's still, we still need our eyes. We need to be able to see what's out there. And if we're in the, if we're in the soup or on top of a layer, you can't see anything. So using somebody else's eyes is a huge benefit. Absolutely, I, I believe that's uh, very true, and that's uh, something that I think we don't rely on enough. Uh, so I, I think that's a great point there, Eric. One other thing I want to talk about: we talked about tools. Of course, if you have some tools you want to suggest, stuckmikeavcast at gmail dot com. I think one of the things that we need to also think about is our power off alternates. And uh, what do I mean by that? When we're diverting around weather, uh, something we kind of want to think outside the box a little bit. If we lose power in our aircraft, where do we go next? If it's partial power, whatever it may be, where am I? And if I'm in a spot where I can't land, say, on land, do I have the flotation devices I need? This catches a lot of people I know in a lot of the, the Great Lakes area. In Florida, it's very easy to be doing an approach and being vectored off an approach on either coast, and you're out in the middle of the water, and there is no way you're getting back to land, uh, and it's going to be quite the swim. Uh, I know that people that fly in the Bahamas a lot, they, they go through this all the time, and I think about that often. It's like, where, do I, where am I going when I lose, if it's in a twin, one engine, where am I going if I lose both my engines, and uh, and what's my plan, and what am I going to do on the way down? And these are the kind of things that I want us to be thinking about. Because I know when we fly single engine, we're hopefully doing that all the time. What's our what? Are, where are we going to go? Uh, but sometimes we don't think about that when we're getting around the weather. So keep that in mind too. Uh, I know, and I think Tom, you were mentioning you do a lot of flying down to the Bahamas and the islands and things like that. Um, do you do you find yourself? I know you do some low altitude flying when you get over there. Uh, do you find yourself thinking those thoughts? You know what what's next? What maybe I'm going to have to land on an island, possibly, or on a beach? Absolutely, and and you know, uh, so going off the west coast of Florida and heading out to the Bahamas in a single engine Cessna, you're going to be out of sight of land for about 15 minutes. 
A good 15 minutes to where you can't see it out the back window anymore and you can't pick it up yet out the windscreen. And that 15 minutes is, is a little unsettling. You're kind of like, you're really thinking about it then. One of the things I learned, and, and I learned this from somebody else a long time ago, is um, making that stop on the East Coast, filling up full of fuel, and putting whatever is going to come out of the plane with me into the water on my body. If it's not on my body, it's probably not coming with me. So flotation devices get put on before we leave. They're on and we're using them going across the water. Um, whatever else that I deem important, like uh, uh, I have an EPIRB, I have that attached to my body so that they can come get me, you know, if, if, in case, if indeed we do, you know, have to ditch it in the water. And, and, and those are the ways that you got to think about it. You know, um, over land flights, I, I almost do flights sometimes if the weather's really bad, like I would do night flights. Night flights, I tend to plan my flights over airports. That if I have an emergency, I can collide to an airport because you can't see anything else. You know, is that big black hole a lake? Is it a patch of woods? Is what? It, I have no idea what it is, you know. So um, in bad weather, that's kind of the line of thinking is how do I keep myself close to, to places? And and to that end, you know, I, I teach my students this and, and have them look at this. So on a big, bigger picture, if you look at just the United States, just a big picture of the United States, and you take a line and draw it from Brownville, Texas, all the way up through the country, all the way up to the western part of Lake Superior, everything to the right-hand side is class echo that's not even depicted. And there are boatloads of airports on the eastern part of the country. You go to the west, it's it's a completely different animal out there. You get out in the, out in the west and airports are few and far between until you get all the way out into the west coast. So the way that you think about how you're going to do this is, is, is a complete different animal than on one side of that line than it is on the other. And like I said, when I've when I fly at night, it's it's over airports, airport to airport to airport, so that I got I got options. Um, if I'm flying in really really bad weather, in a small aircraft, I, I want the options. And if I'm flying out over water for long periods of time where I can't see land, I'm putting whatever I need on my body at that point. And Tom, I'm I'm glad you brought up about over land. I was one of the things that I I like to do is look for large uh, bodies of of land when I'm out there over the islands, large beaches, etc., where I can land. But that is a great point. And you know, flying over Montana, did a lot of flying up there years ago. Uh, your alternate is not going to be an airport uh, if you have a rough engine or whatever. But what you try to do is educate yourself as to the terrain below you and those alternate and contingency plans that we have, places that we can land, where we can land safely, call somebody on a phone, a sat phone, et cetera, and say, hey, come pick me up. So so let's think, and that's, and that's why I brought this up. I kind of want to have people start thinking outside the box, maybe landing on a highway uh, and landing in areas where, like in Arizona, you know, I have friends that do air ambulance out there. They land on highways because uh, there aren't too many airports in certain areas. And those are the type of things we need to start thinking about is that, you know, these are places I can land. So I want to challenge people to do this. And I was just doing this today or yesterday. I was driving from down near Fort Myers to Lakeland. And I started looking around as I'm driving at places that I could land if I had to, uh, if I had a problem. And it may not even be because of the fact I had an engine problem. And well, that's something that would lead to an engine problem, like running out of gas. And there were no places to go. And there were storms over all the airports where I wanted to go to. And I didn't have enough room to, to get there. Where could I put down safely if I ran out of gas 
or had an engine failure. Uh, and that's something that I think is awesome about what you do as far as flying over the West. And that's a great point that you brought up, Tom. Uh, and these are the kind of things that we don't, and that's the reason I wanted to have this conversation is, is you know, what is a real alternate? Uh, <clears throat> we talk about weather. We talk about things like that. We talk about, you know, if uh, our engines fail, if we have partial power loss, where can we put down? Where can we find people that can come and help us? And remember, just because, you, you know, you think you're just going to land on that road, you can take off too i mean i've you know seen it on highways like route 80 where people have landed and then you know fixed whatever it was and taken off again uh so it can happen so don't don't actually you know think that you won't be able to leave uh, so keep that in mind as, as your your other alternate uh your alternate to your alternate to your alternate or obviously your uh, your contingency planning i i really you know i had a a struggle with this topic and and i'm kind of glad we, we were talking this this way because I always struggle with what do I need to tell my students and and what do I need to tell the other people I'm flying with and you know a lot of times I always say you know if things don't make sense try not to make sense of them uh, but what I'm trying to say is think outside the box you know think about what we can do and what we can think about as far as alternate planning other than the legal restrictions let's think about what's safe and, and think you know way outside the box as to what type of alternate planning that we can do. And, uh, and even in that alternate planning, uh, go even further. Uh, say to yourself, where I'm going to divert to, how about fire rescue? How about water? And how about places, shelter, that type of thing? Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize at the airlines, I mean, some of the islands that we have for our alternate airports over the Atlantic, um, there's nothing there. I mean, they can't even fit the people that are on the airplane into a building that's on the airport. <laughs> so, so you have those type of alternates, and it's really, it, it's, it's a challenge. It, it sure is. Uh, but uh, anyway, anything else, guys, as far as, as other contingency planning, other alternates that we can, uh, you know, talking about real alternates, I think this is a really good conversation starter. Uh, I don't think we'd ever be able to cover everything as far as alternates are concerned. We covered a lot here. But in my viewpoint, it's experience and listening to other people's experiences and learning from those. Uh, Because we sometimes dissect, you know, accidents. But I I love to dissect uh, people's experiences so that I can learn from those experiences, like Tom was saying, uh, and brought up about over, over land. Yeah. Just one closing uh, thing on that, Carl, I I talk, you know, it's a, a lot of it is about experience and, you know, different parts of the country have different weather patterns. You know, if we're talking about the, the standard, you know, weather alternate uh, thing, I mean, you have areas of the country where one airport has, you know, always has fog at certain times of day where, 10 miles away, there's an airport that's always clear. I'm thinking like, you know, San Francisco and Oakland, that kind of example. Uh, you know, we're in other parts of the country, if one's down, they're all down. Okay. You know, so that kind of local knowledge you might have if you live there, but you're traveling somewhere else. We have airplanes to travel, right? If whether we're, we own them or just fly them for work or whatever. So that sometimes that local knowledge, you know, we have, uh, pilot discussion forums and, you know, Facebook groups and, you know, all that kind of thing can really help with that. And I see a lot of that. Hey, hey guys, I'm flying to Chicago next week. You know, what, what can I kind of expect? You know, that kind of thing. So the more involved you are with that, I think you can pull upon other people's, uh, local knowledge and experience. And so you don't have to get it yourself the hard way, I guess. 
That's a great point, Russ. Uh, just going into these groups, uh, you know, and you have to. Uh, one caution I have with these groups is sometimes the discussions devolve. Uh, so try to keep it, you know, well, positive. There is that, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but you try not to have that happen. That's why it's good to go in a group has a good moderator. Uh, but you're right. I think it's absolutely a, a great idea. There's so many good good groups out there to to discuss these things with and to learn from. Because uh, it's always fun to put those scenarios out on like the YouTube channels and you see people tearing them apart but as they're tearing them apart you're saying gee what would have i what would i have done in that situation and and that's what we're talking about you know what alternate would you have used uh what contingency planning would you have used what is your real alternate and that's why we talked about it today not just your ifr alternate notice we didn't even tell you about the rules uh i I have it in the show notes you can go look it up yourself as far as as the rules as far as alternates are concerned and uh you know it's really it's really simple uh, but it's, it's complex in your planning. Uh, the regulation is simple, but it's complex when it comes to your planning. And this is a great discussion, guys. I, I really appreciate this. I, I've learned something and, and just some great points that you all have brought up. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, if you have questions, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what kind of alternate planning you're doing. What things that you may have, think, may have thought of and what might be in your toolbox for planning and contingency planning to find your real alternate. And you know, I said we only have uh, four episodes, but we're going to throw out a bonus one here. Episode 287, Beyond the IFR Checkride, Part 2. Really great discussion, especially with uh, Russ Rosleski and uh, and the rest of the folks just discussing uh, different items as far as, and in general, you should look at the Beyond the, the IFR Checkride series we're doing uh, to get you out there and flying in the real world of IFR. When you're talking about IFR flying, there are just so many questions that just keep coming up over and over and over again and there's not it's not the the basic stuff it's maybe the next level which is what we what we kind of talked about uh, i think it was about a year ago in the previous episode um but these questions just keep coming up and so i figured oh let's let's pick a few of them and put them in a podcast so uh yeah, we've got kind of three today uh, i'll kick off the first one here and it's it's this question of here here i am on an instrument approach i'm coming down and it's cloudy and I, I get you know close to MDA or DA. I see the runway. I descend lower. Okay, and for some reason, as I'm descending towards the runway, now that I'm below DA or MDA, I have to go mist. Uh, whether you know bus pulls out on the runway or uh, tower says go around or yeah, I, my my I've noticed my landing gear isn't down or, or whatever the situation is, I I have to go around from this point, and I'm below. DA or MDA. Okay, that's really important here. The question is, am I protected? <laughs> what what do I do? Um, you know, it is does the TERPS, you know, the uh, pr- the procedure uh, design and evaluation, does it account for this condition? And yeah, you know, that's that's an important thing to understand. And really, the the short answer is, you're not protected. Or not very well, and not very much. Okay, uh, protection on instrument approach generally ends pretty much at the DA or the MDA at the at the missed approach point. So, uh, so we're left with well, what do we do? Uh, you know, I, I should say that you know you do have a tiny little bit of protection, but it's not much. I mean, it, as far as we got two conditions here, we have you know. 
protects them vertically above obstacles, right? And laterally, I mean, there's the mountain ahead of you, right? So, so how much uh, slop basically is built into this evaluation? And it's really not very much. It can be vertically, it can be as little as 100 feet. You could, when you start your missed approach, you could be as little as 100 feet over some obstacle. So that's not much if you're descending below it, okay? Now, obviously, if you're right over the runway or something, there's not much to hit there. But the starting you know, amount of clearance there is as little as 100 feet, actually. And uh, laterally, once you get past about 0.3 miles past the missed approach point on a GPS approach, you are no longer in the... Um, and kind of the protected part of that that missed approach, uh, it it's it gets rather complicated and it varies by um, by type of approach and such. But you can see these values are not big. Okay, so if you get below that DA or MDA, you really kind of are in no man's land. Uh, so so what do you do? All right. Well, there are two options that are usually posed in these discussions, and one is fly the regular missed approach, which seems reasonable. Okay. You try to get back to the missed approach as well as you can. Uh, the other option is, well, fly the fly a departure procedure or fly a uh, you know fl fly the obstacle departure or, or something off off that runway. Uh, I'll address that one first because it's quicker. <laughs> okay, uh, from a from a purely uh, procedure design standpoint, you know, an obstacle clearance. You're not talking about air traffic control issues here. Um, but from that standpoint, yeah, you could fly the departure procedure and probably be perfectly fine because of course a departure procedure assumes you're starting on the runway. And if you're going missed, you're already at some uh, height above the runway. So you have more, more buffer there. Right. Um, however, have you briefed the departure procedure? I mean, is that part of your SOP when you come down final to brief a departure procedure in case of a missed past the DA? Uh, that may be for some, but it, likely isn't for many pilots. Uh, plus, can you even have that loaded in your GPS simultaneously would be another, uh, another concern. <laughs> you know, how do you do that? How do you pull that off? So that would not be my first choice, particularly. Uh, so let me go back to fly to regular missed approach. Yeah, that's, that's what you're going to want to try to do, okay? What you need to understand, though, is that the further you are... Um, along the missed approach course below the DA or MDA, the less protection you have. So your first goal is really to get back up <laughs> to that. I mean, mainly vertically, right? So climb above the obstacles and, and such. Uh, fortunately, uh, most missed approaches are based around a 200 foot per mile climb gradient, 200 feet per mile, not feet per minute, like we're used to talking about, but feet per mile. Okay. Uh, and why that's fortunate is because most of our airplanes in most configurations at most reasonable density altitudes and loading and such can probably beat 200 feet per mile. Um, if you're flying a 172 at 90 knots, because that makes a nice round number, um, that's only 300 feet per minute. Okay, so most 170s can do 300 feet per minute in most environments, right? And if you're in some light twin and you're climbing on 120 knots, that's 400 feet per minute. So not necessarily a big problem. If you can beat that, the quicker you can beat it, the quicker you're up to where the you're kind of rejoining the missed approach from below, sort of, if you think about it that way, kind of like capturing a reverse glide slope, sort of, that isn't depicted. Uh, so initially, a VX climb might be recommended, you know, get up pretty quick. 
uh, it isn't really very hard to figure out how much you, how far or how high you need to climb to rejoin it. I said 200 feet per mile, so that means if you are a mile past the missed approach point, once you can get, you know, gain 200 feet, you're probably okay. <laughs> you know, two miles past it, gain 400 additional feet, and you're probably okay, right? You want to make sure you're uh, you're making a, all the turns and such that the missed approach procedure specifies, and and that will be the best uh, solution for you know for resolving this this problem that you've either you've put yourself in or, or some you know other uh, uh, factor has has put you in. But I do want to talk about real quickly though. We have some approaches that have climbing gradients required that are in excess of 200 feet per mile. Uh, you'll see this on the chart. You'll see missed approach uh, requires a climb of you know 300 feet per mile to some altitude, right? Um, this is this is actually there's a hidden thing here that is really important to realize. Um, if you Obviously, it's going to be harder to get back on a miss because you need to climb steeper. But the real important consideration is because there's a climb gradient, that means there are actually obstacles out there. Okay? A normal missed approach with this 200 foot per mile climb gradient, you could be doing that here in Oklahoma where there's nothing around for 100 miles, right? And so even if you didn't maintain 200 or you were slow getting up there, you're probably not going to hit anything. You could probably climb at 100 feet per mile and be fine, okay? But the only reason that a climb grading is, an increased climb grading is on a missed approach, like 300 feet per mile or 400 feet per mile, is because there's an obstacle. So when you see that on the chart, you know there's something in the way. You know there's something out there. Unfortunately, as the pilot, you don't know where it is. Um, it could be just a couple miles off the departure end. It could be, you know, closer to the, you know, the holding pattern. It could be way out there. So you don't know. Uh, but there is guaranteed to be something tall along the missed approach path. Uh, f since you don't know where it is for this reason, I'd be kind of reluctant to, uh, to do an impromptu missed approach below the DA or MDA on something with a climb gradient. I think you're, you're, uh, the, the risk, the risk assessment is much worse. Okay. Maybe, maybe you say, you know, I'm going to land somewhere anyway. I'm going to land on the taxiway or, you know, steer around the bus or, yeah, I don't know something, you know, you're flying into Aspen. You, you don't want to go missed after the missed approach point, you know, that kind of idea. So, um, but I, I think that's, that's a real important uh, thing to understand. And back to the beginning of that topic, there is no obstacle protection if you're below DAMDA on an approach. It's it's not designed. You are an individual part of the approach, and you are not necessarily guaranteed anything. So, um, and I guess this is the question I think a lot of people have: is um, you're providing your obstacle clearance by your eyeballs, your your visual at this point, uh, and and I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Is now you're it's just like being on a visual approach, right? Uh, you're, you're providing that protection yourself by making sure you're seeing and avoiding those obstacles. Um, but I love the fact that you brought up this. What what happens if you do go below? And what do I do next? And and how do I? How should I go around to keep myself safe? And I, I, I love all that. You know, you discuss as far as you know, looking at the obstacle departure procedure and seeing, uh, you know, if you have a, a non-standard climb gradient, you're saying 200 uh, 
uh, feet per nautical mile. And, uh, and a lot of people also, I guess, would ask, you know, how do you determine your climb, you know, rate? And sometimes it's a good idea, I think, to figure out what your rate of climb would be on your VSI prior uh, to doing that go around. And uh, it's actually, there's charts on it. You know, you can look that up or figure it out in your head. And, you know, the way I do it, maybe, Rush, you have a better idea, is, you know, I just divide my, you know, my ground speed by 60 and then multiply that by the, the climb gradient. Uh, so, for instance, if I'm doing 90 knots, uh, divide that by 60, that's 1.5, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But you have to realize, of course, that it is ground speed. Like you did, you said, ground speed. And it's important. It's ground speed, not airspeed. You may be climbing out at 90 knots uh, indicated, right? Uh, if you're at a high altitude airport with no wind, 90 indicated is maybe 100 knots true. And if you got no wind, it's 100 knots ground speed, right? Uh, so that makes it harder. You got to climb steeper. But if you're, you know, if you have a normal headwind, you know, you got 10 knots of headwind, and, you know, maybe you're only climbing out at uh, 80 knots ground speed or something like that. So uh, it's important to realize it is ground speed. Now, 90 is a nice number, results in one and a half. 120 results in a multiplier of two. So, and that fits the range of most climb speeds in light general aviation aircraft that are flying IFR. So, if you can remember those two numbers, you're pretty well set. I like the fact you said that because I think, I think that's a good idea is to have that in your head uh, beforehand. And also, uh, if you are going to descend below MDA or DA, you know, just make sure you. Uh, realize the the risk you're taking, you know, you're seeing and avoiding, right? Um, but realize also that using these tools, uh, you can keep yourself safe. The other thing that's interesting, I know people are going to say this, well, how about all these engineered missed approaches that you see it, uh, like in somebody's part 135, 121, that's different. You know, that, that's been calculated for all these approaches at all these airports and have been submitted to the FAA. That's a whole different process that's, that's gone through. And I know we're going to get some comments on that. I don't know if you can speak towards that, uh, Russ, but there is that process I, I think they have to go through. Yeah, I can't speak in any real detail on that you know, when you're talking about uh, one-engine inoperative type missed approaches and those kind of things. Those are not, well, they, they may be approved by the FAA, but they're not they're evaluated in the same way that the rest of the, the chart is. Uh, you know, the, the, the normal approach chart does not account for situations like that at all. Um, so if, if, however, your company does have you know, authorized, you know, what, what would you call that, uh, non-standard missed approaches or something like that, then, then that's certainly an additional consideration, yeah. Right, right. Like, a, you know, a special departure procedure, a special engine failure procedure, whatever it is you want to call that, which is, uh, but uh, just to make sure, you know, because there's a lot of guys that listen to this that are like in 135 and part, you know, part 91 and K and, and some 121 guys out there. Uh, but we're trying to, you know, the GA pilot, uh, we're out there, we're flying our, our Mooney, you know, what do we do? You know, how do we keep ourselves safe? Yeah, I wanted to add in there, uh, Carl, that uh, one of the cases that this could really be an important uh, consideration is, yet we study for the instrument check ride, right? And when can you go below the MDA or DA? And it's, you know, if you see the runway or the runway lights and there's, all, there's like 10 things, right? And you got to memorize them, <laughs> right? And and it, if you see those, you can go down to 100 feet above the runway and, you know, and it goes on like that, right? Um, well, that's descending below DA and MDA. That's exactly what we're talking about. So you see, you know, the approach lights or whatever, so you descend lower and then you never see the runway and you have to go missed. 
you're in exactly the situation we're talking about here. You're perfectly legal to do that. But if you have to go miss because, hey, the runway never appeared, you're in this situation. So that's that's something to think about. <laughs> you know, if the weather's really low and it's pretty iffy and you're wondering, eh, I don't, it's right at minimum, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do it. What are you going to do if you have to go mist 100 feet above the ground? So this plays into that whole, you should always be thinking about the mist approach. There you go. Always be ready for the mist. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that was that was actually a, a good discussion. And, and I, I like the fact that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions about this online and, and I think that was really helpful. So I appreciate, appreciate you bringing that one up. Yeah. So the next topic uh, that comes up all the time on discussion forums and especially when we're studying for the instrument check, right. And we're learning about holding patterns, especially the parallel entry to this holding pattern. Uh, what do you do after you cross a fix on a, on a, uh, on a parallel entry? you go into the unprotected side of the holding pattern. So the question is, is there really an unprotected or non-protected side of the holding pattern? Uh, this, this comes up kind of all the time. And it's, it's, it's uh, worded as like this dangerous area, you know, do not cross into here. Uh, well, fortunately, uh, we have Chris Pizzala here as well. And Chris wrote a book on the topic. So Chris, do you have anything to say about the unprotected side of a holding pattern? Well, hi, Russ. Uh, thank you for having me again. So uh, that was uh, one of the hardest questions to answer uh, was, you know, how much space does a pilot have uh, protected in a hold, and th is that side unprotected? And uh, I don't have the number now, but there's actually an FAA publication that air traffic controllers use to determine how much space to allot. And that actually includes space on the non-holding side. So I use the terminology holding side and non-holding side. The holding side is larger, and then the non-holding side, of course, is smaller, but it's still pretty significant. Even for a GA aircraft, it's over a mile, uh, oftentimes mile and a half, two miles, depending on the speed of the aircraft, the altitude, and the environment it's in. So uh, you absolutely can use that space. Uh, in order to make sure that you remain where you need to be, you just have to follow the uh, recommended entry procedures, fly the, comply with the speed restrictions, and make sure you make your turns in the correct direction. And the biggest uh, issue we see with aircraft accidentally exiting the protected airspace is not from drift or because they did the wrong entry. It's usually because they made the turns in the wrong direction, uh, left when they should have gone right or right when they should have gone left, especially with uh, computer technology, uh, GPSs, because a lot of folks will program it and they will uh, forget which way to put it, uh, especially with the airline pilots. That's where we usually see that occurring. Interesting. So, Chris, question. Is that, um, so again, is there such a term, though? I mean, as far as the, un we hear this a lot, and I've never really seen it in any publications except on discussions. Is there such a term, you know, the unprotected side of the holding pattern? Well, there's no portion that's unprotected, so short answer is no. Uh, it would just be uh, holding, non-holding. Yeah, I like that terminology too, Carl. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Chris. Uh, yeah, holding and non-holding would be the far better, you know, less uh, death-defying you know, term, right? Less scary term. Because holding patterns are huge. I mean, compared to the speeds we normally fly this in, I think... Uh, especially when we're in training, of course. I mean, you're flying the Skyhawk around and holding at 90 knots, right? Uh, holding patterns are enormous because they're designed for aircraft flying the maximum holding speed, which up to 6,000 is 200 knots indicated. 200 knots indicated, you know, at 6,000 feet is, I don't know, 220 knots true. They account for a tailwind, you know, from the worst direction. Uh, they account for horrible technique, <laughs> 
you know, late turns. They account for the worst, uh, like if you're talking about like a VOR intersection, you know, the worst configuration of nav aids. I mean, even when we're talking about GPS, it's still going back to this, these things that were designed in the, I don't know, the 50s or something, right? So, I mean, they're gigantic. They're many, many, many miles uh, in addition to what you probably need even in your worst day <laughs> when you're not thinking ahead. So yeah, they're, they're, they're huge, uh, but absolutely both sides are protected. Uh, as Chris was saying, uh, you know, and vertical, um, uh, clearance on these is a thousand feet too. So it's not like you're, you know, just skirting, uh, skirting along the tops of antenna towers. You know, I, I was wondering, you know, you, you talked about something before, as far as this holding patterns book that you wrote. And, um, I think a lot of people do get confused on this. Um, is there any way someone can get a hold of that book? I was wondering, because I know we talked about it a couple of times. There's a couple of videos we have, and I'll have a link to that video we talked about. Um, but uh, is there any left around that we can actually purchase? So it, it's no longer on the Amazon marketplace, but a number of third-party vendors uh, still make it available. So uh, you can still get a copy of it. Uh, the book has a wide range of applications, including dual VORs, DME, and gradually I'm going to be phasing that book out and looking to make a new one down the road that's going to be more dependent on GPS and FMS, uh, so it would be a little more practical. So that's, that's why it's not on the Amazon Marketplace. But if you'd like a copy, you can still get it from some of the uh, third-party vendors. So, um, and what's the name of the book again? So that's the Advanced Guide to Holding Patterns, which is pretty much the only thing you can call a book that's 79 pages on holding patterns. It, it also got FDA approval as an over-the-counter sleep aid. So sleep it's, aid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so, the, the whole third, of, the middle third of the book is examples. That's far why it's such a big book. Well, 79 pages on holding patterns has got to be pretty in-depth. <laughs> it is. It is. That's for sure. Well, awesome. I, you know, I appreciate you doing that, Chris, for putting that together because I, I thought it was a great resource, especially for this question, you know, that we're talking about here. Yeah. So I would just uh, kind of, I think, conclude this unless, Chris, if you have something else you wanted to add, I'll conclude that topic by just saying, don't be so worried about it. Do the correct entry. But man, I've seen people really get kind of stressed out about going, you know, three inches on, you know, on the other side of the line there. No, it's, it's okay. <laughs> fly your plane, fly the way you, you've been taught and you'll be fine. Yeah. And that's what I've told pilots. And when I, when I used to lecture on this, uh, same thing, it's, you know, fly the aviate, navigate, communicate, do it in that order. Great advice. I tell you, it's, it's, uh, it, the, the holding pattern, I tell you, is something that so many people get nervous about. And, uh, you know, as far as how do I, how do I do a holding pattern? And, you know, uh, there's one of them going to be in the non-protected side of a holding pattern. Uh, and I think this is good clarification on that because uh, it's something that I still get quite... I've been getting this question for so many years. Uh, I'm actually thinking of including it in my interview prep that I do for the airlines because I think a lot of people are under the impression there is such a thing as a non-protected side of the, of the holding pattern. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm going to use it as a tool. hope you don't mind that, Chris. There you go. And actually, I, I, looked, up, I looked up the size. And uh, if you picture the, um, the, you know, the inbound course, I'm diagramming with my pencil for all the listeners that can't see this. But, but uh, if, you, if you picture the inbound course, the non-holding side has... The smallest side holding pattern that's actually being used uh, has three and a half miles of protection, uh, you know, parallel to that line, I guess. Three and a half miles with actually an additional two-mile buffer, which is called a secondary area, but it's basically a buffer area. So, I mean, up to five and a half miles on the side. 172, you got to be way off course to uh, to even get, get close to hitting something. I mean, five and a half miles of going the wrong way at 90 knots is... 
a long time. So, <laughs> yeah. So now if you're flying your Learjet and holding at, you know, 200 knots indicated, you know, a little more concerned, but hopefully you have a little more training at that point. So, uh, the last point that I, that I picked out for today's show is this concept of easy as sometimes I got to the missed approach point. And I just got the runway in sight, but I'm 500 feet above the runway because it's, you know, an LNAV procedure or something. I'm 500 feet above the runway. How am I supposed to be able to land from here? I'm 500 feet over the threshold of the runway. There's no way I can land. This is ridiculous. This is a stupid missed approach point. Well, it's not. <laughs> um, the, of course, you do usually get responses. Well, I could make it. <laughs> you know, I could do it in my my, super, my IFR Super Cub, but but uh, that's not really what we're looking for here. Okay, you probably can't do it using uh, normal rates of descent that are required to descend below uh, MDA or DA. Um, so the key here is we've kind of been lulled into having this question as a result of GPS approaches. Really, uh, the missed, and I'll explain that more in a minute. The missed approach point is not in any relationship a point where you get to and then can expect to be able to land from, okay? Um, it's merely a point where if you get to that point and you haven't already seen the runway and haven't already begun your descent, then you need to start the missed approach. That's all it is, okay? And I said we this question seems to be coming up more and more with GPS approaches because most of our missed approach points when the GPS approach is at the runway end. And so mentally we think, Hey, the runway is still in front of us. You know, I could probably still land maybe, but if you look at some VOR, especially VOR approaches, uh, man, you get missed approach points in all kinds of places. I used to fly at an airport where the missed approach point on the VOR approach was the VOR itself, which is very common. Um, and the VOR was past the departure end of the runway. So the far end as you're coming down. Okay. So basically you flew over the runway for the last you know minute or two of, the, of your approach. You just couldn't see it because you know, you're you know, in the clouds or whatever, but, uh, there's no way you're going to land. You'd have to turn around and land, which is, you know, silly. So, um, there's no relationship between two. You'll have uh, missed approach points of VORs that are, you know, all off the side of the runway, you're halfway down and, you know, a half a mile off, you know, off of alignment. So, uh, so that idea is just right out. <laughs> okay. There's no expectation you could land from a missed approach point. Um, but what is a good, uh, indicator of where you might be able to land if you have it on the approach is this VDP, this visual descent point. Okay. And from the, from a visual descent point, if you see the runway by that point, you are in a position to make a normal descent to the runway. It's not a missed approach point. I see that, that come up sometimes. You don't have to go missed there. Um, you, if you see the runway after you've passed the miss, the VDP, you're closer to the runway. And you think you can still land? You're allowed to, at least in Part 91 operations. You know, uh, corporate and airlines may have different rules, but you know, some basic Part 91 operations. If you think you can still land, you can go ahead and land. Uh, you don't have to execute a missed approach at the visual descent point. But if you do see it, see the runway, you will have a normal descent. Normal being you know, usually a three-degree glide path, uh, or if the uh, the VASI or the PAPI is set for something different, it'll be aligned with that usually. But um, but it'll be a normal descent. Uh, so that is the point at which 
you can make that determination. That's a good reference for that. Uh, I do know some people treat that as a misapproach point. If they get to the VDP and they see, uh, hey, I, I don't see the runway, and then a quarter mile later, oh, I see the runway too bad, I'm going missed already uh, because I th the think of the descent would be too steep. And that's fine, uh, but, but it's not a requirement. Uh, but that would be the, the uh, indication of a reasonable place to land, not the missed approach point. Uh, for anyone who isn't sh quite sure what we're talking about here, uh, the visual descent point is kind of that bold V in the uh, profile view of the charts, both on uh, the FA charts and Jeppesen, a kind of a bold V. And if you look, I mean, it's usually a mile, mile and a half or so from the runway. It depends on the, the MDA. You'll only have a visual descent point for a non-vertically guided approach. So a localizer, VOR, possibly, or an LNAV, um, yeah, uh, only line of minimus on a GPS approach. Uh, because if you're flying an ILS, you just go and keep flying it down to the runway. There's no point in having a VDP. So it's an important distinction to understand, I think, the uh, difference between that, that missed approach point is not a place where you can land from, and a VDP definitely is. A lot of people, though, um, talk about this VDP that they calculate, I think, and they kind of get confused yeah. as far as that's concerned. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that, maybe? Yeah, I can. Um, so... Actually, charting a VDP requires some specific conditions that uh, you know, there has to be a distance source. So if it's a ground-based procedure, you have to have a DME source. Of, you know, have to have a way to tell where you are, of course. Uh, uh, there are some obstacle-type requirements that um, are required in order to chart the, uh, the VDP. But So if you don't see one on the chart, it may be totally benign or just, you know, some some uh, rule that prevents it or it could be there's a bunch of obstacles in the way and so that thing you know but you don't really necessarily know uh, however you can calculate your own uh, pretty simply uh, I think most most folks use the 300 feet per per mile you know so if you're if your uh, height above touchdown 600 feet your VDP is about two miles away you know rough numbers right is that how you do it Carl absolutely that's that's how I do it you know, it's interesting, I was going to mention, you know, in the airlines, some have changed over the years. We used to calculate our VDPs, and uh, in most of our databases, if you look at some of the approaches, they they actually have a descent angle, say, of 3 degrees or a 3.2 or 3.1. And uh, and we actually, that's programmed into our, our FMS, and it we use that as guidance, but we derive... Uh, an altitude based on you know whatever the decision altitude is plus a certain numbers of uh, feet depending on which airplane we're flying uh, so it actually makes it easier for us we don't even do we don't do that whole math thing anymore we'll just add 50 or we'll add 100 or 500 even to that uh, depending on on what it is if we have an actual uh, you know vertical path that's charted that's actually in the database uh we can't do we can't as a matter of fact the company i'm working for we can't no longer level off anymore we have to have to make a decision based on that uh well, so there's that's no, our more, own. no more dive and drive at your your company no there, more huh, dive Carl? and drive <laughs> okay good all. good stabilized <laughs> approach yeah but um how about you know i, I know chris you, i don't know if you want to comment on some of the airlines you've worked for but what have you seen as far as 
these VDPs and this constant descent to final approach fix that we call CDFAs, I think is another term. Uh, right. So I've worked for two carriers recently, and uh, it's the same uh, concept as your carrier, which is we're trying to get out of this uh, process of, of dive and drive, and we're going to a, an automated process that is uh, giving us a vertical glide path. And uh, Now, this is a little different than an ILS, and here's the difference. We just talked about the airspace protected by an MDA or what's not protected. In the ILS world, there is a small amount of protection below the decision altitude, which allows an aircraft time to initiate the go-around and the missed approach. Especially for an airliner, that can take 50 to 75 feet. I think 75 feet is the allowance. Uh, so what happens is when you take an aircraft, let's say an airliner, and you want to do a vertical path to an MBA, the aircraft can't get to the MDA and then suddenly level off or go around. So that's why you see air carriers adding 50 or 100 feet to that, is to give the aircraft time to initiate its go-around. It says, okay, if, if I'm 100 feet above the MDA and we don't see the runway, we're going to have to start the go-around. And once you start that go-around, you're going to have to go. There's, even if the runway comes in the site after that, uh, there's no safe opportunity to land. best thing you can do is to go around and then make your decision if you're going to go try it again or if you're going to go to the alternate at that point. Yeah, Chris, I'm really glad you brought that up uh, because that that, uh, that kind of goes back to the first topic we talked about if we're below uh, DA or MDA, right? Uh, and there is no protection for that. There is protection in exactly the scenario you were talking about. Uh, if you initiate the the missed approach at the DA, there is, it's expected that you're going to sink a little bit in the process. Remember, DA is a decision altitude. You make the decision. It's not a minimum altitude. Man, I, that could be a whole other topic. I should have added that as number four. <laughs> Think about that one. But um, you make the decision at decision altitude, and because airplanes have inertia and engines take time to come up and reconfigure and all that kind of stuff, it takes some distance. And yeah, but something like 75 feet is perfectly reasonable for a larger airplane not for a 172 this is not saying you know you get to da and say oh well i have to think about it oh look there's a runway you know i mean you can't take you know 20 seconds to make your decision you make your decision you go um but that that is accounted for and protected for but uh only from the standpoint of you are starting the missed approach at that decision altitude and not you know going down and seeing the herd of sheep on the runway or whatever. You know, to add to that point, uh, Chris, and also Russ, um, it's interesting when you look at different airplanes, you have to decide when, what is your lowest altitude. And, uh, you know, when I said 400, 500 feet, there are same aircraft type can actually be 500 foot different in our decision. We could be at 900 feet and have to go around. Uh, and that's, again, due to the geometry and due to the aircraft and also due to the fact if you're on autopilot, some of these aircraft take a little bit longer to go around. Inertia is one of them. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about this, but just remember that's every aircraft. We just, uh, in, in the Cherokee that I fly, the 172 I fly, uh, it's a little bit different, but you still have inertia. And, and you still have to constantly be making that decision. You're always making decisions until you actually park the airplane and shut it down and get out and tie it down. Uh, and I think that's, that's the most important point here. Uh, so, so again, Russ, going back to that original question, the missed approach point doesn't mean you can land from there. Yeah, it's true. There, uh, yeah, so back to that topic number three, I guess. <laughs> you know, um, there is no expectation to land from the missed approach point. You get to the missed approach point. If you haven't seen a runway already, 
you execute the missed approach procedure. If you do get there and you see the runway and there's no way you can safely descend and land, you go missed. You do the same thing. Okay. So there's no, there's no expectation to be able to land from the missed approach point and, and no accounting for it. No, it's not one of the criteria involved. You know, Russ, I love that example you gave of the one where the, the, the missed approach point was at the other end of the runway at the VOR. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you're definitely not going to be landing there. And I guess the one other comment people might say, well, what if it's VFR? Well, then you're on a visual approach. <laughs> so this is, it's a little bit different. Yeah, you know? you, you, Are you going to go if miss? If you're VFR or, or even if, I mean, if you've broken out and you've got plenty of room and you can, you're above circling minimums, you could basically fly a pattern back to the runway. You could circle. Uh, you know, these, these things are, it's generally recommended that you, you know, have a plan what you're going to do before you get there, not just, oh, look, hey, there it is, and turn the thing. But uh, I guess it is legal. And that's important, too, because people ask, what if I'm VFR? Just remember that it better be clear in a million, because remember, you can go back into IFR conditions, and now you're on that missed approach, and and you're back in IFR conditions. So, you know, it all depends on the weather. It really does, and you have to evaluate your situation, Uh, because I get that question, too. It's like, well, what if it's VFR? Well, by VFR, do you mean it's like no ceiling and it's clear in a million or is it a thousand foot ceiling it, it depends on on what you're looking at and uh, and if you're going to re-enter ifr conditions when you do go missed uh so that that's something to consider uh when you're looking at that but hey you know russ this has been a awesome set of topics here i mean it really has made me think and i'm sure we're gonna get a lot of feedback and obviously go stuck my gavcast.com and and put uh, some of your questions there and feedback i'd love to hear from people about what they do and, and what they they think about this uh and uh and just all these different uh, questions you have here but anyway russ do you have a comment yeah, I just wanted to say to the listeners, you know, you know, this is you know, part two. I can't, you know, we have no end goal in mind, you know, if, uh, if we get some feedback for part three, we'll do part three. So, uh, yeah, if, it, certainly, uh, you know, email, uh, email us if you have additional topics you want to, you think you'd like to discuss or hear about, that'd be great. Uh, especially, you know, uh, especially you know, instrument instructors that are seeing the same kind of questions over and over again. That'd be great. We can, we can uh, do the research and talk about uh, whatever you want. Please let us know. Yeah. Remember this is the beyond the IFR check ride series. This is only part two. Uh, we'll never stop doing this. Um, and stuck my at gmail.com is the easiest way to, to email us with your questions. Cause I know some things will come up uh, and maybe you have questions about specific things that we talked about here. So very good point. And all the social media, Facebook, uh, et cetera, you can find us out there and just ask a question there. We'll get back to you. If it's not right away uh, from us, uh, somebody will definitely get back to you uh, and say, hey, we got your question. We're going to answer it in one of the next episodes that we do uh, on Beyond the IFR Checkride. And remember, as an instrument pilot, you're constantly learning. Any pilot is. Uh, but things are always changing. And people ask, why do we do recurrent training? Um, this is why. Uh, there's so many things to think about. And this is what makes it, I think, it's really a lot of fun uh, because it's so darn challenging, you know, to think about all these scenarios. And I love the fact that we have simulators. We can, you know, actually do some of these approaches, you know, start thinking about these and do some of these approaches. And, and if you have one, send it to us. Say, hey, you know, I was doing this approach. You know, what do I do here? would love to hear back from you. So, uh, Russ, I really do appreciate you bringing these topics. <laughs> Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the best of 2021. We had a little bonus one at the end there. Uh, Don't forget, 
All these picks of the week are on our main page at stuckmikeavcast.com slash picks of the week. And if you're interested in helping someone achieve their aviation goal, please consider our Pay It Forward campaign. And it's really simple to go out to the Pay It Forward campaign. It's aviationcareerspodcast.com slash payitforward at our sister podcast. Or go to stuckmikeavcast.com, click on the Pay It Forward button in the top right. That'll actually help somebody move forward, not just in their career, but also in their flying life, in their general aviation flying life. Well, I hope you really enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. What I really want you to do is think about in the new year, in 2022, what could you do to move forward in your flying life to pursue that passion of aviation? Obviously, here at the Stuck Mike Avcast, we're very passionate about flying. And one of the commitments I want to make to you is that we're going to make episodes that are going to help you fulfill your aviation goals in flying and pursuing that passion and helping you stay energized and motivated even in these challenging times. I'm so excited about 2022 and I hope you are too. Can't wait to see you out there. Make sure you grab me if you see me at one of the air shows. We love bringing those to you. Anyway, we'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.